everybody. Welcome to another Comic Boom Comic Source collaboration. It's your DC Spotlight for November 28th, 2023. Uh, coming out a day late because uh, I had a lot of day job stuff. Plus, oh my God, so many books. So many books. Oftentimes, <laughs> uh, towards the end of the year, the content sort of slowly uh, dwindles. Uh, not the case this week with DC. 17 single issues. Uh, insane. So, yeah, an insane amount. Uh, some of these we're going to be pretty brief on just to not have you guys bored out of your minds uh, or to have a four-hour podcast. So, uh, Also, I'll mention I'll be at LA Comic Con this coming weekend, December 1st through the 3rd. So if you're going to be there, let me know. Always love to meet up with uh, listeners. Always have free lanyards and other free stuff to give away. Uh, it's a good show. Great show to do some Christmas shopping. I did have some people... Uh, some fellow content creators and what have you say, yeah, does this show seem lighter to you in terms of like media guests and what have you this year? I was like, you know what? Maybe a little bit, but on the flip side of it, there are more comic book guests, good big name comic book guests than I can remember since pre-pandemic. I mean, Dan Slott's going to be there, Chip Zdarsky, Zeb Wells, uh, just the list goes on and on. So many great uh, comic creators. So I'm going to put out a preview episode. I've been meaning to put it out, but they've been lagging on their uh, panel schedule. So I'll get that out hopefully late Wednesday, early Thursday. If you're curious about who's going to be there and uh, all that, uh, go check out that episode. So that being said, let's go ahead and kick it off with the first issue, uh, Static Shadows of Dakota, issue number seven. This is the final issue written by Nicholas Draper Ivy, Vida Ayala with an assist. Uh, art is by Nicholas Draper Ivy and letters by Anne World Design. Uh, we've really been enjoying this series. Uh, I think Draper Ivy's art has gotten only better as the series has gone on. Uh, the villain sort of or anti-hero of the piece, Eben, uh, who's been alternately fighting against Static and teaming up with Static to try to rescue his brother from whomever this person has been that's been uh, collecting these bang, bang babies and experimenting on them. All of that's answered in this issue. Uh, I, so I found the structure to be a little different. If I have any uh, nitpick, that that's what it is. We got so much about who was behind this. Uh, and spoiler alert, it's somebody that we've seen before in the series, but there were no clues. There, there was no way to know, even had you read this over and over, and it's your favorite comic ever, you've read it more than any comic book you ever have read, there's no way to know who the villain was. Um, but the, the choice of villain is really interesting uh, and I appreciated getting context and some flashbacks to different periods of, of their life. And it gives uh, clues on uh, kind of why they're making the choices they're making and what have you. And I sort of felt like if we'd had that all along, it might have informed the story a little bit better. Uh, but the fact that we didn't even really see the villain or know who the villain was. So it wasn't a situation where we were seeing the villain in shadow and there was no context and it was like a two-dimensional villain. We just didn't even see the villain at all until this last issue. And I, and I just I, I, I questioned that a little bit. If it wouldn't have been better to have it revealed earlier on, you could have had a little bit more emotional impact. You could have spaced out the uh, the flashbacks over you know the whole series. But I, you know, I'm playing script doctor. It is what it is. It's it was a great series really showcases the family feel of the Milestone universe and Static in particular and sort of this antagonistic at times, um, friendly at times relationship between Static and Eben. Uh, so 
overall, this was a very successful series. I'm looking forward to the next Static series. I do have a feeling, based on the quality of this series, you know, my little critique was standing, that Nicholas Draper Ivy may handle the writing duties on his own. Uh, not that I don't mind Vita Ayala. I'm, I'm a big fan of their work. Um, but I, Draper Ivy lives and breathes Static. It's like his favorite character. So uh, I think having the assist on writing this time made sense. But based on the strength of this, and every time I post about it on social media, uh, Vita Ayala is always quick to point the finger at Nicholas Draper Ivy. No, he's he's doing all the heavy lifting. I'm just assisting. Um, so it'd be great to see Draper Ivy uh, fly solo uh, on the next one. So yeah, overall, pretty strong series. Just uh, the structure of the last issue wasn't, uh, it was kind of surprising. wasn't what I was expecting, but it was a satisfying conclusion. So uh, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Uh, I, I agree. Uh, and the, and, and the revelation really that it was, it was actually the, the, the one, the, the character that we knew as, as one of the teachers of, of one of the teachers at the school, Miss Lennox ended up being the, the big bad and go, giving us her 40 year history in a series of sort of uh, background vignettes. I thought it was very effective and it worked and it worked surprisingly well. Uh, you made the comment that it, perhaps if we'd have gotten some revelation or some hint of that earlier on, it may have enhanced the story. I'm not, uh, maybe, but I don't, I still didn't, I, I still found this satisfying. Uh, and because, because part of it, it uh, I, I could make an argument could be made that just finding out now actually also it, it, it heightened the ending a little bit because there's a tragedy to it that, you know, because in particular, the one of the things that Eben and we've had some conflict between Eben and Static and Eben utilizing lethal force, wanting to kill Static, convincing him to not do that as ultimately they confront Miss Lennox, uh, who uh, was, was so deranged as to uh, per, per in the pursuit of her goal with these baby boom, baby, these baby boom uh, from the, what do you call it? Uh, boom babies, Banks. bang babies. Right. And uh, the, the death of Quincy, like the young, the young child, the young child prodigy, his death is so, so tragic and whose, whose loss and whose death, whose murder, uh, by the machinations of Miss of Miss Lennox, uh, really laid the the emotional undercurrent that uh, of these seven issues, and, and so effectively done so well by Nicholas Draper Ivy and and to and Vinayala, and it, it really uh, I thought it really worked here. I, I loved uh, I loved and and this issue ended on just a great speech by Static at, at Quincy's funeral, just sort of bringing it all home, uh, all those emotional undercurrents, and I, I thought it I thought it was very effective, and I agree that this this seven issues would, was is going to make for a great trade very effective if you want to get the essence of static when this comes out as a, as a trade these first seven issues that's the way to go i think this was very well done and i'm looking forward to see what nicholas audrey variety has in store for us if in fact he's truly at the forefront as vita ayala says uh i got no problem with that i'm looking forward to more and and his art his art trailed off wasn't quite as good in the later issues as it was in the earlier issues he seemed to have changed his style a bit near the end but it was still effective enough that i i enjoyed this story and i look forward to more static in the future that, that's interesting i i actually like his art calmed down it wasn't quite so dynamic but it, i felt like it was a little softer and more emotional uh brought in a little more blues okay. and purples with Evan. so that that's so interesting that you you like the more dynamic. I, I liked it a little more subtle. Uh, so yeah, it's subjective as always. Uh, all right, let's move on. Amazon attacks issue number two. This is written by Josie Campbell. Vasco Gregev is the artist. Alex Gormis on colors. Becca carry on letters. I don't have a whole lot to say about this. Uh, the art is strong. The colors are really great. 
Um, it, it's kind of more of the same for me in terms of uh, like what we had with the trial of the Amazons, even the Amazons themselves, the different tribes, uh, the Esqueta tribe, Banna Magdal, uh, the Themyscarans, they can't seem to get along. Um, even when you're talking about, you know, the representatives of, of those three tribes trying to, you know, escape from New York City, uh, you know, after they were uh, sort of tricked by who we find out is one of the uh, Olympian gods who's behind everything, the goddess of chaos, um, tricked into going to where the U.S. president was. And then they're sort of framed for an attack on the U.S. president and what have you. And they're trying to escape. And um, Mary Marvel shows up. And with the help of her magical bunny, they're tra- sort of transporting, teleporting around the world. Um, and, and in the midst of that, they're arguing amongst themselves. It, it's not it's not enjoyable to see them arguing amongst themselves. I mean, I, I get it. Um, a high stress situation. It, it is, you know, it does feel realistic in terms of, you know, they, they, they're from different tribes. They, their values are similar, but not exactly the same. They're all sort of alpha females, if you will. And so, you know, it makes sense that they, there would be some, uh, some arguments between, you know, the best way to handle it or what have you. Um, but again, it just feels like more of the same that we had with trial of the Amazons where it's more political than anything else. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of action in this and it is uh, of higher quality, uh, in terms of structurally and, uh, you know, the, the narrative pacing and what have you, it is better quality than Trial of the Amazons. Don't get me wrong. I thought Trial of, Am- of the Amazons was sort of a mess. This is more entertaining or what have you, but I am still left with the feeling that I, I sort of don't care. It's, it's, it's not compelling enough. To, it hasn't pulled me in yet. Uh, and I've been a fan of Josie Campbell in the past. I really loved her Mary Marvel uh, series that she did. But this so far has just been sort of paint by the numbers, not very memorable. And you add in the bickering between the different uh, Amazonian tribes and I'm, I'm left sort of, sort of shrugging my shoulders. So it uh, hasn't pulled me in yet, but uh, it's not terrible. Uh, it's just not, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't pull me in. It's not compelling. It's not something I'm going to remember once the event itself is, is over. Uh, if you know what I mean. So anything to add Rocky? Yeah, uh, writer Josie Campbell, I'm glad that she's the one take spearheading this because uh, Trial of the Amazons, frankly, I never particularly enjoyed it. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to, I won't belittle all, all the points I made. But one of the points I made while I was ranting about Trial of the Amazons, how much I didn't like it, I thought it was a mistake, a huge mistake to unite the Amazons. Really, really stupid because you take away the drama. And you know what? I was right. And you know who I think actually believes me, who agrees with me? Josie Campbell. Because what does she use as a plot point? These Amazons are disunited. They're not particularly united in this issue. Why? Because there's more drama and more plot points when they're not getting along. And that's exactly what happens here. Surprise, surprise. I think it would have made more sense and it would add more, more gravitas to Amazon's attack if the Amazons had never been united, uh, particularly after, after dealing with the, the god of chaos during that particular trial. In any event, I like. it's interesting that the golden apple of Discord is being used here through Iris, the goddess of chaos. I'm, I'm a little bit curious I, to what extent Josie Campbell is actually consulting with Tom King. Tom King does not work well with others. He always tells his own story. And contrary to what he has often said, he just does not communicate well with other writers. And I, I doubt that there's... Uh, I, this is me being cynical. I hope I'm wrong. But I openly wonder, is this, is this Iris, this goddess of chaos? Is she actually working with the Sovereign? Because I thought the Sovereign was the reason why all the 
that that the that the world was against the Amazon, so U.S. citizens were against the Amazon, and the lasso of lies. We got that flowing out of Wonder Woman three. Confirmed the lasso of lies plays a role, and and the sovereign is manipulating the masses. But is is the sovereign also working with one of the Am- uh, Greek gods, this Iris god of goddess of chaos? Maybe maybe he is, maybe he isn't. This would suggest that he is. That's what I'm getting out of it. As for the rest of it, I do think this is probably just from to get us from point A, B to C uh, at the end of this series here to include the Amazons and maybe have a couple of side plots with them dealing with side issues while Wonder Woman deals with the Sovereign proper. The the, the, the little the, the side gods that might also be working in conjunction with the Sovereign, maybe these Amazons, maybe the maybe, maybe Nubia and and and, uh, and Wonder Girl and, and Shazam. Uh, Mary Marvel will be dealing with the with Iris, the goddess of chaos, and this this golden apple of discard. How many of these golden apples of discord are there? Uh, I'm not sure, but I thought it was okay. But it is by the numbers a little bit, but it, it is better than Child of the Amazons. And I will give Josie Campbell uh, some credit in that regard there. So not bad. Yeah, I sort of took it as Iris just taking advantage of the kind of the tumult, the situation with the. Um, What's happening in Tom King's Wonder Woman? I don't know. Right. But I could be wrong. Maybe she's working with the Sovereign. Maybe they teamed up. I, I kind of just took it as her using, hey, Amazons are sort of in, in a bad situation right now. I can take advantage of this. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so, right. yeah, I guess yeah, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll have to wait. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention is, uh, you know, Hi- Hippolyta shows up here in a vision that Nubia had. Uh, you know, you mentioned Trial of the Amazons being sort of a mess. Uh, Reuniting the tribes, which never really worked, and they never really have been united. Um, I sort of feel the same way with Nubia being made queen of the Amazons. All that has been showcased is sort of her failures. <laughs> In a way, it's it's um, it sort of made her a worse character. Like she's had all these terrible things happen on her watch. She hasn't been able to really unite the Amazons, the tribes, what have you. She just, she doesn't come across as very capable. Uh, I think it's overall hurt the character uh, and. It, yeah, just there's a regalness that Hippolyta has that Nubia never has. Nubia is more boots on the ground sort of character. And yeah, it makes me wonder if DC hasn't, you know, they wanted to, to raise Nubia's profile. Uh, and I think in trying to do so, the execution hasn't been good. And, and in fact, they've sort of gone the other way and made her uh, in a lot of ways a, a worse character in my mind. But I don't know. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Alan Scott, The Green Lantern, issue number two. This first issue was uh, Book of the Week for, I think, both of us. Uh, the week it came out, Tim Sheridan is the writer. Cian Tormi on art. Matt Herms on colors. Uh, Lucas Gattoni on letters. This is sort of a, an, an updated uh, origin of Alan Scott. Um, it gets into the idea of deviancy with his sexual orientation and, and things that went on um, pre-World War uh, II, where you, if you were found to have homosexual tendencies, you'd be put in an asylum, electroshock, and even to the point of lobotomies. It's very tragic. Uh, it's you know based on historical fact and what have you. Um, so it's interesting when you talk about what the origin of Alan Scott Green Lantern would be uh, when you go back and you sort of retcon the, this uh, change in his sexuality. It makes a lot of sense, um, and I, it, I found it to be poignant. I found it to be emotional, and I love how um, Tim Sheridan's flashing back to those early days of Alan Scott and, and him even questioning, questioning just, you know, based on what society's value were, values were at that time, whether there was something wrong with him, you know, he talks about, yeah, I'm going to be cured. I'm going to get out of 
I mean, he's in Arkham Asylum, right? He's he he self committed himself there to, to you know have his deviancy cured, and he says, "Yeah, I'm going to be cured. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to marry the first woman I see." And it just it speaks again to the the values uh, of what was going on at that time, and uh, it's again it's it's sort of tragic. And then you add in him losing uh, his his boyfriend when the the Crimson Flame. Uh, exploded and what have you. So it's great to see it all linked back in. Oftentimes I talk about retcons and not enjoying uh, when they go back and and do it because it changes things. But here's the thing. Alan Scott's a golden age character. His origin was sort of, you know, very two-dimensional to begin with. And so when we're going back in this instance and we're adding in Crimson Flame, we're adding in, um, you know, the change in, in Alan Scott uh, with his sexuality or what have you, it feels very additive. It feels like it's fleshing him out as a character. It feels more like a real person as opposed to just, you know, random straight white superhero from the golden age. And the fact that his origin apparently is going to be tied in a lot with the red lantern uh, that we were introduced to in uh, some recent Jeff Johns uh, material as sort of one of the lost characters of the, the golden age. So I'm really enjoying this. The C and Torme art is fantastic. Uh, this was a bit of a flashback issue, so we didn't get a lot of movement in uh, in terms of the present day story. But we are set up to now have a you know a bunch of action, have uh, Alan Scott confront the Red Lantern, find out who it is, what's the tie in with the uh, Crimson Flame, and what have you. And so, yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying this series. Very impressed with what Tim Sheridan and C and Torme and company are doing so far. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was impressed. Uh, I, I really enjoyed this issue. I was particularly, you know, I'm, I'm conservative by nature and I, I and I just want to delve a little bit into politics a little bit here, because if, uh, on the surface, uh, I, I'm, I surprised myself by how much I enjoyed this issue because it actually, it actually took a topic that it is, there's sexuality in, in this comic. There is, and it, it, it's called conversion. The, the, the title is the title of the story in the sec in the second issue is, uh, is called conversion. And he's, you know, he was the hero. He saved in the first issue. He saved all the men on the battleship. Uh, he lost his uh, lover and, and, and former, uh, uh, and, and fellow soldier, uh, Johnny, that he was having uh, a relationship with. But, uh, rather than report him, uh, all the men who they knew he saved their lives. And so his commanding officer gave him the opportunity. They didn't want to report him. Just, just go and deal with your, cause you're different, deal with your sexuality. And, and they went and, and he can, as you said, he put himself in Arkham Asylum. And there's even another character here called Billy who, uh, and, and this is where, uh, where, where, uh, it gets interesting cause his, his roommate, Billy is actually, you know, I, I don't know if he's non-binary or transvestite or trans or whatever, but he, he, he refers to himself as a woman. And so, you know, very much, very much Alan Scott is ahead of his time referring to his male roommate as, as a her, because to, to respect his, you know, to respect his roommate, even though his roommate was, it's interesting that Alan Scott was there thinking that there was something wrong with him and he wants to cure himself of his sexuality while he seems to honor and respect the, the, uh, the, uh, I guess the, uh, the pronoun wanting of his of his roommate so you can see the conflict that alan scott is going through throughout the issue and you can see that you know with all the shock therapy and the conversion therapy that they're using how it, it took its toll on all the all the patients at arkham and how ultimately that led to their escape and and also and and just the, and uh just as it leads to the end it's clear that this red lantern as who got his powers presumably from a crimson flame 
knows knows something about Alan Scott's past and probably knows something about Alan Scott's sexuality. Uh, and we don't really know what the secret of this Red Lantern is, but he, he is the Crimson Flame representing death and this green flame uh, that, that Alan Scott got when, the, when that train wreck ha occurred is sort of like the flame of life. And so there's some symbolism there that goes right back to the original Golden Age stories of, of Green Lantern, Alan Scott, Green Lantern. So there is, uh, so uh, the writer here, Tim Sheridan, has done his homework. Uh, there's going to be some people who just don't like this storyline because of the of the subject matter and what it deals with. But I agree that it is it is additive, and quite frankly, it's when you, when you if you're since you're taking the sexuality and it is a part of the character. I like the fact that this is actually relevant. This isn't addressing the sexuality for the sake of just shoehorning it in to check off a box. It actually is part of the story and. Part of, part of the reason why he, he becomes Green Lantern is as a result of how he has addressed his sexuality and it's that's impacted the character and how it move, how he moved forward has a direct impact on on his origins and that's what I like about it and it does feel it does feel natural so kudos to Tim Sheridan I I, I'm, I was impressed in this issue. Yeah, and it doesn't, you know, undo anything that was done before. Yes, he gets married and has kids. You you can see why. He says himself, I'm going to get out of here and go marry the first woman I, I see, you know. I'm, so even though when he does, he doesn't do that when he actually escapes and he has some more um, relationships with men, uh, you can totally understand at some point he's like, you know, just based on the time period that he was living in, man, I, I need to get married. I need to have some kids, you know, uh, trying to put that other side of himself away, kind of maybe out of shame or fear or what have you. Uh, the other thing that's interesting, you know, you mentioned the, the green flame of life, the red flame. I mean, I haven't called it death or whatever, but, uh, you know, in, in DC, we talk about the green avatar, the swamp thing. That's all about life. And the red has an avatar as well. It's more blood. Rot. Um, it's a rot. It's a red. Uh, rot. Yeah. I thought the black. I thought black oh, you're right. Rot. So what was yeah. the red? What is the red? red is blood. Red is blood. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So, but then you can also look at red as red, you know, the, the red lanterns, atrocitus, that's more rage and what have you. So yeah, right. um, a lot more to be discovered about this uh, crimson lantern. So we'll mm -hmm. see. Uh, all right. Up next, we have the flash issue number three from writer Cy Spurrier. Mike Diodato Jr. is the artist. Colors by Trish Mulvihill. Letters by Hassan Atzman Elhau. I, I really don't have a lot to say about this. They're really leaning into the uh, – Sykesburg is really leaning into the, the word salad with all these sort of different <laughs> uh, scientific terms he uses. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, and, again, the, the style of art, like Mike Diodato, the, in terms of you know experimental and interesting uh, visually, it checks off all those boxes. But I'll go back to what I said when we talked about the first issue. When you have a narrative that's so convoluted and confusing – this style of art isn't doing it any any favors. So yeah, it was a little it was a little tough. This this for me, the first issue I was kind of down on. Second issue I liked more. This one kind of back down into the into the mess and the mire, if you will. Uh, and and the other thing, and this is just a total personal subjective thing, totally a little nitpick or whatever. But when you have the title page eleven pages into the comic, like. I get it. Sometimes you want to put it at the end, like end credits on a movie. I don't agree with that. Like in my mind, you open up the first page, there's a splash page, there's the credits. And maybe <laughs> yeah. it's like old man, you know, get off my lawn or whatever, but that's what you, that's what you had back in the day. Yeah. You had a splash page that pulled you in and Stan Lee presents and you had whatever. Um, that's what I like. 
Now you want to do a double page spread and you know, you get the first page something and then you open it up to a double page and have the credits. Fine, whatever. But that's it, man. Don't go past page three. Do not go past page three. I can make a rare exception to put it all the way at the back, like in movie credits, like I said. But page 11, you're more than halfway in. It's not at the beginning. It's not at the end. Like, that's just – don't do that. It, yeah. it just it serves no purpose. It serves no purpose other than to make me frustrated when I'm going to look for the credits to get ready to record. I know first world problems, but it just, it, it bugs me. It, it really bugs me. So anyway, what did you think of this Rocky? Well, first of all, I, I want to, uh, I read this three times and the reason why I read it three times is that, uh, well, frankly, uh, I, uh, uh, I got bored and, uh, and I felt, I, and I thought to myself, well, I'll be damned if I'm not going to, if I'm going to be lost with this flash comic. So I did read it three times and, and you know what? It suddenly occurred to me I, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but this is actually not that complicated. Uh, I actually, then I read the solicits and lo and behold, the solicits simplify this. All that's happening here, and this is going to lead to a, a criticism of Cy Spurrier's writing, is that all that's happening here is there's something wrong with the Speed Force. And what's happening is when, uh, when Flash, all he uses the Speed Force, or any Speedster, Max Mercury or Flash, or when they use the Speed Force, it has negative effects in another dimension. And we just don't know what that other dimension is or what the effects are. That's all it is. And what happens in this issue is that Wally is able to vibrate at a different particular angle. And he can see the negative effects that other people utilizing the Speed Force, like Bart Allen in this issue, he can see that it's having negative effects in another dimension. And in this other dimension where that the stillness, that the stillness are aware of, because they, they mentioned that, that, that it's causing damage to the br these brain paths in another dimension. And the uncoiled, as well, is in another dimension where time doesn't exist. So in this issue, really all that's established is we know as a fact that uh, something is wrong with the speed force, uh, but it's not obvious to our uh, on our plane of existence. It's not obvious to speedsters unless they vibrate at a particular angle and can peer into this other dimension and it's causing damage. And the stillness is concerned about it and the stillness is concerned about the uncoiled and the uncoiled seems to be the bad guys existing in a place of which there is no time. And at the end of this issue, Max Mercury... Who, who vibrates intentionally at the same in the same manner that Wally does? They end up in this, this alternate in this alternate dimension uh, where there's no time, and the speed force is greatly minimizing its power. Max Mercury, just in time, gives uh, gives his speed to Wally so Wally can escape. But Max Mercury is trapped in this other dimension. Meanwhile, uh, what uh, now? The problem is, and you said it too much word salad. <clears throat> this isn't a simple. This this is a simple concept. That, that Cy Spirier has gone out of his way to alienate the readers from. And somewhere in this, in these three issues so far, there's perhaps an interesting story uh, in the personal issues between Wally West and Linda. Uh, we still don't know what happened, what happened to his son, uh, who has uh, encountered somebody uh, in, in, a, in a school closet and, and uh, there, there's in, in another world from another dimension. The uncoiled are potentially interesting. The stillness are potentially interesting. But at the end of the day, what is really going on here? We got a bunch of word salad, which, you know, quite frankly, when you got, I like Mike Diodato's art. I wish I could see more of it, but there's so much dialogue and I don't need all the word salad. And, and what's so obvious and frustrating to me is that, yes, there's something wrong with the Speed Force, Wally. That's, that's not entirely made clear, but it, it becomes clear if you read it multiple times, which I did. 
And once you know that, then Wally nonsensically says he's still keeping the, some of the problems he's having with the Speed Force a secret from Mr. Terrific when Mr. Terrific has clearly established to him and, and Max Mercury have that there is something wrong with the Speed Force. And he's still not telling Mr. Terrific everything. This, in my view, is out of character for Wally. Wally's not this stupid. Uh, but clearly, I guess, in this story, he is this stupid. So it's frustrating to me. I don't know where the story's going. I'm not sure even what the stakes are. Who cares that the Speed Force causes problems in another dimension? Why should we care? I don't know what's at stake. Now, maybe that will be revealed, but I'm frustrated. And three issues in, how many readers are going to have the patience to stick with it this long or be crazy like me and read this issue three times? I think very few people. But I, I did do that. Hopefully, I think I got the gist of it. Please, anybody listening, if I got it wrong, leave a comment below if you're watching on YouTube or otherwise. But, you know, feel free to enlighten uh, Jason and I <laughs> because it, there's some frustration here. But I do think that there's a... There's some. There's a scintilla here of an interesting story. I just wish that somewhere in the word salad it would manifest itself. So there's my rant. <laughs> yeah, it's. It's. I mean, again, I think Jeremy Adams' Flash was selling. I don't have hard numbers, but Jeremy Adams' Flash, his run was selling really well. And they just decided we want to go like as completely different and opposite from that as we can. Like you know, we heard cosmic horror. I'm not the cosmic part. I get. The horror part, I haven't gotten any of that at all to this point. Nothing's been horrific or scary. Um, it's just been unnecessarily complicated. Um, so anyway, let's move on. Uh, up next, we have Titans Beast World number one. Holy crap. Uh, Tom Taylor is a writer. Ivana Aris on pencils. Danny Mickey on inks. Brian Anderson on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Uh, I know you, you actually read this a couple weeks ago. You've been dying to talk about it, so I'm going to let you go first. Uh, well, I don't know if I've necessarily been dying to talk about it. What, what I actually said was that I was uh, pleasantly surprised because I got to tell you, man, I had low expectations on this. I really did because Tom Taylor's just been, he's just been boring me to death with his Titans run and with his Nightwing. It's just generally speaking, not a heck of a lot's happened, especially on Titans. But God damn, I got to tell you, I, I was, I was really surprised. First of all, the art's fantastic. Ivan Reese, man, oh my God. It's, I guess I, I didn't, don't appreciate how much lately we haven't, maybe the art at DC hasn't been, I'm not, I'm not used, this is just stellar art, fantastic art. So let's get that out of the way. Absolutely fantastic. And we basically have, uh, uh, we've got a Necrostar versus Starro, or actually Garo here. And we got this, uh, uh, that, that boring Titan storyline, that Titans, that the first arc of Titans that was so boring, uh, I, I just felt it was just boring. Well, it's actually leading somewhere. And this, you know, the, the leader of the, the, the new brother blood is actually an alien. We know he's Tamaranian and we know that he's actually, he sends his uh, forever knots to the, the, one of the moons of Jupiter, Titan, uh, in order to investigate something. And they end up unintentionally releasing a necrostar uh, that was uh, imprisoned there thousands of years ago in a battle with Starro. And the, this necrostar uh, has spores, just like uh, for classic readers of DC, you know how Starro is a giant star. Think of the Suicide Squad movie. That, that walking, crazy-looking star that shoots out little miniature stars that can, that like spores that infect people and stick to them and infect them. Well, the Necro Star does that as well. And 
and this necrostar is coming toward Earth. And this is a really good, what I like about this issue, it, it shows how the Titans step up to the plate because they're the Justice League. They're the ones that take the bull by the horns. They're the ones that the moment they see something wrong on the moon of Titan, Cyborg gets the boom tube and they boom tube to the to the moon. It's not Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman. You know, it's 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 the Titans. It's it's Donna Troy, it's Cyborg, it's Starfire. They're doing their job. And that's what I love. And they're they, they're stepping up to the plate. And that's what I loved about this. Finally, this is Justice League level action in a in a in a for the Titans team. And I really appreciated that. And and they, they take decisive action when they fail to, when, when the Necrostar is released and it's coming toward Earth. They call a meeting of all the heroes of Earth and they get the Justice League there. And they, and they come up with a plan. And I'm not going to deal a lot with spoilers. Well, I might touch on a little bit here because I'm, I'm, I'm going very fast. But I want people to enjoy this because part of the enjoyment of this is the beautiful epic art of Ivan Reese. Uh, I love how the Titans, you know, the Starfire calls a meeting. Tom Taylor, one of the things he does so effectively here, this is almost like a one-shot. So much happens in this issue to, to a step. This is such a brilliant, beautiful establish, establishment of what this series is going to be about. And it does so brilliantly. And for the first time, I can't believe that I'm, I actually think Beast Boy, I'm actually, I actually felt sorry for Beast Boy. And I've been critical of that. I've, I've hated every issue that Beast Boy's been in. You know, he's the guy's more concerned about saving the environment in Borneo. I think he's dragged Titans down to, to boredom personified. And all of a sudden, Beast Boy here steps up to the plate. He's got a plan that, you know, he stands up to Batman. He's got a plan. And uh, and it's it's so it's so wonderful to see that him step up to the plate. He forms into a whale, so his, his brain capacity is larger. And in order to defeat the Necrostar, he's got to basically become a giant Starro. And there's a piece of Beast Boy that, has, that becomes part of all the spores that essentially uh, infect and protect every human on the planet from the Necrospore. And everything would be perfect. And I'm, I'm jumping to the chaser. Everything would be perfect except for the intervention of Dr. Hate at the behest of Amanda Waller, your favorite character, Jace. <laughs> and, uh, and that screws everything up. And at the end, the, the, the mind of, of Beast Boy that is in this Necrostar is, uh, that is in this, that Garo, because they don't call him Starro, they call him Garo, which is kind of cool because his real name is Garth. Uh, and I thought that, I, I thought it was just very well done and how Garth, as, as this giant Garo uh, defeats the Necrostar, but in doing so, Dr. Hate intervenes and essentially Gar's mind is dissipated or disappears. And because there's different pieces of Garth in all the little Garos all over the planet, uh, there's a piece of Beast Boy in, in all of us. And that's what leads to the concept of Beast World, where all of us everybody on earth including a lot of the heroes are infected by these spores and that causes them to turn into beasts of different kinds as, as sort of a a riff a riff off of beast boy's powers and exactly how it's going to resolve itself uh will raven ever be able to retrieve garth's mind that may be the part of the story because now we've got this giant garth floating above the earth that's empty that's its mind it's gone beast boy's mind is gone but the but it's broken up arguably amongst all these little garos that are all over and infecting the earth. And I thought it was very well done. 
And I'm, I'm really curious to see where this goes. Uh, the characterizations were great. The dialogue is great. Tom Taylor showing off all his all his his knowledge of the DC universe. This is this is more of Tom Taylor's A game. This is the Tom Taylor that I wanted to see with, with Titans issue one. I'm finally seeing it. I'm impressed. Uh, you got me to like Beast Boy. That really impresses me. And yeah, I just I'm looking forward to to Beast World. I can't believe I'm saying that, but I'm looking forward to Beast World. What about yourself? Yeah, it sounded a little bit like a gimmick uh, when it was first announced at San Diego Comic-Con, right? Like, Beast Boy has to turn into a Starro. Uh, you're like, what? How could that ever? But yeah, Tom Taylor makes it make sense. And what I love is it's not like Gar just goes, okay, I need to turn into a, a Starro. I'll just transform into a Starro. No, he has to gradually, like, build himself up, becomes a whale. And, you know, he talks about how he's actually going to have to transform. And he can't even really wrap his head around it. And so he you know, a whale has more brain, uh, you know, just uh, more brain, like a bigger brain, like more brain area, more surface area to, to think and whatever. And so it's a, it's a gradual transition to him becoming a Starro or a Garo. It just, it's fantastic. I knew as soon as I read this, uh, as I was reading it, actually, I'm thinking, eh, I understand completely why Rocky loves it. Uh, like, you know, you mentioned it yourself. This is the Titans you expect. This is the level of storytelling epic universe ending threats and what have you. This is what you expected from time Taylor. This is what he's capable of. Their argument could be made that the actual Titan series is a little more family focused, a little more emotional. This is where all the action is. Uh, and you mentioned Yvonne Reese and his art. Uh, I totally agree. Like there's just something about certain artists that when you see their art, they're just really suited to do these big kind of epic events, right? Daniel Samper's art has become that. Ivan Reis is another one. George Perez was like that. It's just, it's so good. And it, it, it sort of, I, I don't want to say it reflects badly, but when we have other events, you know, like we had with Night Terrors, nothing against, How, you know, Howard Porter or what have you, but when you see that style of art as opposed to something like this, uh, it, it's just different, right? David Finch is another one. When, when we had Forever Evil, you know, I think way back to that event, there's just certain artists whose art just seems so epic. Uh, and it's, it, it just inherently the style they use makes it feel like an event as opposed to some of the other artists who, uh, you know, again, they're talented, but it just doesn't have kind of that same impact, if you will. So yeah, it's a fantastic story. I enjoyed it. I'm not going to add any more, um, to what Rocky said, go check it out. It's fantastic. I, I've been sort of indifferent about Beast Boy in the past. Yeah, he, this is good. This is fantastic. It's it's a compelling, maybe the most compelling Beast Boy story I've, I've ever read. Gorgeous art. Uh, can't wait to see what happens next. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Action Comics <coughs> number 1059, main story by Philip Kennedy Johnson, art by Eddie Barrows and Eber Ferreira, colors by Matt Herms, letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, what do you think of this main story, Rock? Uh, this, this was really good. I, I have to admit, that I was surprised by the revelation in this issue. I, I was I was really surprised. I that is to say that this Nora Stone, this member, this this leader of the Blue Sky Movement, that is that speaks out against Kryptonians. That as a result, as a fallout from the War World saga, this Nora Stone, her actual true identity is actually uh, is actually revealed, and she's revealed to be an an Al Gul. Uh, but from another universe, and there's actually an editorial reference 
to Batman Superman The Authority Special Number 1, which I never Googled, but it must have came out probably five or six years ago. And this 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 uh, Al Gaul uh, character, who uh, who is, I think she's sort of like the empress of, uh, she, she's the leader of the Empire of Shadows, and they're invading our dimension. That's what they're doing. And, and she is the offspring. She's the offspring of, of Batman and uh, Talia Agal in, in another universe. And it's actually, uh, this issue was, at, was absolutely action-packed. Uh, Superman is wearing uh, some, uh, some battle armor given to him from, uh, from uh, uh, John Henry Irons. Uh, he needs that because he's he's lost some of his uh, powers because of the because of the machinate because his powers are being drained. All of the Superman family, their powers are being drained by by Nora Stone, and of course they they want to utilize that power in order to essentially uh, well basically invade invade the Earth, and they're stealing powers from the L family. But they claim that they've developed radiation processing nanobots. That's what they're telling everyone else, and that they're so they're they're telling us they have a PR campaign. Nora Stone, i.e. Al Gaul, she's she's has a PR campaign where she's telling that the the world that they've created radiation processing nanobots, and that's why their her her minions, her everyday humans who are, are getting superpowers uh, through science. When in actual fact, it's draining powers from Kryptonians, the very same Kryptonians that she's using as a scapegoat to blame all the, the world's problems on. And it's all misdirection. Very, uh, I, th I think it's very well scripted by uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson here. Uh, it's, he's, uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson is wrapping up this storyline and he's, he's not going to be on Action Comics. But it's, it's, I like where it's headed. I I, re I actually really like the revelation. I particularly love where there's a scene where Lois Lane is staring staring at uh, Nora Stone and says, "You know what? She looks like she looks like Bruce." <laughs> and Superman, like, "Oh my God! Of course!" So it was actually it, it actually felt na natural. Here's Superman, the guy with super mem with a super memory, and he finally connects the dots because of something his wife says. She actually looks like Bruce. My God! Well, that's that's not surprisingly, she's an offspring of Bruce from another universe. I thought it was very. I, I thought this was a really great issue. Philip Kennedy Johnson continues to build up the the, the hype here, and also one of the one of the super twins ends up being uh, abdu abducted by Nora Stone, and she Nora Stone wants to essentially use Nora Stone uh, for her own uh, to to have Nora Stone join her to manipulate her to take over her mind and have her join them and and. Uh, uh, frankly become part of the empire of shadows and I, I i quite like the main story here it continues to build there's other things but i encourage people to pick this up because this is i think this action comics is worth a good read and it does lead to a pretty good uh it will lead to i hope it leads to a fairly good conclusion what, what did you think of the main story yeah i really enjoyed it uh, as well love the eber for art um like just there's an uh there's real emotion to it um, in the detail, especially, uh, you know, you mentioned that moment when Superman realizes that he does know who this uh, leader of the, the Blue Earth Movement is. So <laughs> so I really enjoyed that. Uh, Osel and Otha have, have been sort of growing on me as, um, as characters. So getting Otha involved, you know, having her um, be kidnapped is, is really interesting. And, yeah, it, it just goes to show how – 
Philip Kennedy Johnson, such a great world builder. You know, we talk about it all the time. So to, to, to have this be a, a, an Al Ghul from another um, part of the multiverse, it's just, it's just interesting. It just really works. So uh, I, I'm really enjoying it. I, I'm going to be sad to see Philip Kennedy Johnson leave the book. I, I, I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm excited to see what Jason Aaron's going to do and, and some of these other writers, but um, it's been a fantastic job uh, and just a really compelling um, story so far from uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson. So, uh, and again, the art just, just fantastic. Just, just really, really great. Uh, the second story continues the um, Superman of China story written by Jean Luen Yang. We have, uh, let me get to the credits here. Uh, we have uh, Victor Bogdanov on art, which is art's absolutely fantastic. Mike Spicer on colors, Dave Sharp on letters. Really satisfying two-part story talking about Superman's secret identity. Uh, Keenan Kong figures it out, figures out that Clark Kent Superman, we know the, the psychic bomb or what have you that is in the, the head of anybody uh, who figures out that Clark Kent and Superman are one of the same, all stemming from what um, Lex Luthor did with Manchester Black and what have you. So all of it, it, it just, it really suits the story very well. Keenan Kong being a younger version of, of Superman from China, Victor Bogdanov's art, there's a youthfulness to it. So that works on a lot of levels. And Jin Luen Yang, obviously, you know, of Chinese descent, um, he's written a, a lot of this, um, a lot of the stories for, uh, for Kenny Kong. So he definitely has a, a, a real good handle on his voice. So, um, don't know that this story was needed necessarily. Um, but it, it sort of brings Keenan Kong into the super family a little more now that he kind of knows everybody's secret identity and he's, he didn't just, they didn't just tell him, right. He found out on his own. He, he's really vested in the, the Superman family more so now than he ever has been. So, you know, if that's the only thing that comes out of this story, I think it's still worth, definitely worthwhile. So uh, yeah. any, any thoughts to add? Yeah. The, the story I think is trying to, it, it basically ends with uh, Keenan discovering the truth that uh, the, the reason why, uh, the reason why the Superman family is his fellow members of the Superman family were keeping uh, the knowledge of Superman's secret identity from him is they told him what happens to people. They get a stroke and they potentially could die if they, if the identity is discovered. And so this is something that Keenan does not want to tell the Batman of China, his friend bakes uh, the Batman of China and it creates dissension. And so Keenan is now estranged from his own, some, from his friends in China, which I think is unfortunate. I, I find it a little bit odd. I feel, I feel it's a little bit forced. I, I find it hard to believe that Keenan would abandon his friends in China to come in North America to suddenly become, to adapt, to basically become part of a new family of which he wasn't really close to to begin with. So it doesn't work for me. I prefer Keenan. Keenan should, it's, it's the ethnocentrism and the, and the, and the arrogance of just of course, North American writing. We got to have the Keenan, the, the Chinese Superman. We got to have him in. We got to have him in Metropolis. Why? Uh, I, if I was the Batman of China, I'd be pissed off at him too. I understand Keenan's in, a, in an impossible position. He can't tell the Batman of China what's going on because the Batman of China could end up with a heart attack too and and die or a stroke or what have you. Uh, but that's just my little nitpick. But that's really the the the, the purpose of that is to create dissension between Keenan and his fellow. Uh, his fellow Chinese Trinity, I guess you could call it. So, uh, but it, it's not bad, not bad. But there's actually another story here as well. 
Yeah, the last one, John Canton Hart in Metropolis, written by Dan Parent, art by Marguerite Savage, letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, Dan Parent, I, I know him as an artist. Yeah, does a lot of work for, for Archie. And, and this is sort of slice of life with John and with uh, his, his boyfriend, Jay Nakamura. Um, how they ha- we haven't seen a lot of Jay lately. This sort of explains why Jay's been busy working uh, over at Steelworks with John Henry Irons. John Kent's obviously been busy doing all his um, Superman stuff. Uh, so they get a chance to actually spend some time together. Again, much like the Alan Scott story, if, if this is something that bothers you, just don't read it uh, because there's there's not there's not really any sort of you know events or revelations or anything you know canonically here that you're going to need. This is just John and Jay spending time together. So if you don't like that relationship, do yourself a favor. Don't read it. Yeah. Um, I, I I don't mind the relationship, but I didn't really get a lot out of this story because it's just, it, it's no different than reading about, you know, any two boyfriends or, or a boyfriend and a girlfriend or two girlfriends for that matter of, you know, that are in their late teens, early twenties, spending a day together. I don't want to read about that, no matter if it's boy, girl, 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 boy, boy, because I, I, I just don't care. Just because it's John Kent doesn't make me care. Um, so, you know, if, if this is something that uh, inspires you or that you can relate to, help you with coming out or whatever, like there's worth in the story for a lot of people. I, I just, I'm not the audience, <laughs> you know, I, I don't, uh, I, I'm not the audience for that. Uh, this is, doesn't represent me, which there's nothing wrong with that. Again, everybody needs to be able to pick up comics and pick up stories and see themselves in it and see, you know, their orientation, uh, their ethnicity, their really, whatever it might be, whatever th- they, you feel defines you, you need to be able to see that in the stories that you read. You need, need to be able to feel seen. Um, and so I'm glad that this story exists. Uh, I don't feel seen by reading the story because, again, I don't relate to it in that way. Again, nothing to do with the fact it's boy-boy. It could be girl-girl. It could be boy-girl. I don't care. I just It's a romance story. It doesn't interest me. So, uh, But there's nothing wrong with it. The, the Marguerite Savage art, you know, we, we've talked in the past how uh, much her art has improved in terms of um, feeling more fluid because there was a lot of times early on when we saw some of her DC work where it felt like, like children's storybook art where there was no movement to it, it felt very stiff. She's improved by leaps and bounds, a lot of emotion, a lot of uh, movement, a lot of fluid- fluidity in this story. So uh, credit where credit's due. The colors are gorgeous as well. So uh, anything to add, Rocky? Uh, well, no, uh, we, we already knew where, uh, I think this is a pointless story. Uh, did we need it? No, I didn't think we needed it. But I suppose, do we need any story? No, I guess not. Uh, but for those of you who are wondering, and I'm being intentionally sarcastic here, just so to, to cover my butt a little bit, uh, in case you were wondering where uh, where John Kent's boyfriend was, he was in, uh, he was having a long bubble bath, and he was texting John Kent through numerous issues. And in between bubble baths, when he was washing his beautiful pink hair, he was uh, involved in. He's also working for uh, steel the steelworks, right? Or is it Steelworks or is he work for John John Henry Irons? Who does he work for again? Steelworks. I mean, Steelworks, Steelworks. is John Henry right. Irons. Yeah. Right. So that's it. He's got impeccable fashion sense. I got to say, uh, Jay Nakamura, he can really rock a pink suit coat. You know, if I could pull that off, I would try to do it. But I just don't. I'm losing my hair as it is. And so I don't want whatever I got left. I'm not going to dye pink. But uh, no. Uh, hey, it's it's beautiful. Beautiful art by Marguerite Savage. Beautiful art. And uh, yeah. And uh, 
certainly they have Jay Nakamura has his fans, and this is definitely one you want to pick up if you are a Nakamura fan. Yep, so let's move on. Next up we have Batman Beyond Neo-Gothic, uh, issue number five, written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. Max Dunbar is the artist, colors by Rain Moretto. Uh, Hassan Atwan Elhow on letters. Interesting how um, John Constantine, almost the Batman Beyond John Constantine, is almost the, the villain of the piece here. Um, the Interesting to see sort of the, the Neo-Gotham version of Swamp Thing as well. Uh, I think it comes to a conclusion next issue. We're told it's the fall of, uh, of Neo Gotham. So uh, I like the, the new characters and the interaction between the characters that Lansing and Kelly have built up here. Uh, and, and I kind of like the structure of the story, right? Like Batman Beyond and, and Kyle, this, uh, this cat boy, have basically been descending down layer by layer into Gotham before they finally get to the, the core where Constantine is there. They find the kidnapped children. Constantine is um, doesn't seem to be the Constantine we know in a lot of ways. He's, he's almost out and out evil. You know, he'll turn uh, a la Amanda Waller. Um, but so interesting that at that point where uh, all hell's breaking loose on the uh, on the surface level of Gotham, and the way sort of opened up for uh, for Batman Beyond to go to go up there for Terry to go up there and and do the best he can to try to keep. Gotham from collapsing in on itself while Kyle the Catboy is there to sort of fight against his mentor, John Constantine. You know, this long journey all the way down only for Batman Beyond to go back up, Kyle to be there trying to reason with Constantine. A lot of moving parts. Um, This is going to be one of those stories, I think, that's going to read better in a trade just because you'll get more of a sense of that journey um, and that that push and pull um, that's been established here with all the different uh, characters that Kyle and Terry have have met these new versions, these Batman Beyond versions of characters that we that we know and love. The Max Dunbar art is fantastic. The colors are gorgeous. Uh, it just continues to be a really solid comic. And one of the other things that really uh, the Batman Beyond really has going for it is you can basically, I, I would say, pick up the the first Batman Beyond uh, Neo Year uh, story. You can get it in trade, six issues, what have you. Read that, and then you can dive into this. You don't need to go back and read any previous Batman Beyond stories to understand what's going on here. You don't need to read any other DC stuff. This is very continuity light in terms of that. Um, and it's just a really wild and fun ride. So uh, what are your thoughts, Rock? Uh, I didn't mind this. Uh, I, I reflect and I echo all your comments in, uh, to the extent that they're uh, complimentary. I've, I've been enjoying this series I do have one nitpick, and it's a nitpick, more so of a nitpick than a complaint. I don't like the, what they did to John Constantine. I don't. John Constantine has always been an a-hole, but he's an a-hole with uh, a sense of he would never impose his curses onto someone else that selfishly like he did to Catboy in this in this series and then suddenly become evil i don't i don't like that i just don't like how they handle john constantine here uh that's just my nitpick i just it just doesn't fit for me in my iteration of john constantine i get it that this is arguably in the future and it can be a different they can do what they want with him i get it uh and, and that's all well and good and and i like the fact that batman is going back up to the to to the surface to 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 you know, deal with Neil Gotham and uh, leaving Catboy deal with his mentor, John Constantine. It, it, I don't know how that's going to be resolving itself and just what with one issue left, or is, is that going to be an ongoing 
thing, uh, an ongoing battle between Catboy and John Constantine moving forward. But what I do like is I like how uh, Killian Lansing sort of thought outside the box a little bit. And they, they, they introduced some new ideas, some different ideas in this series. And for, you know, for five issues in, I was actually, there was actually quite a, there were some interesting things that have happened. And I was entertained. And again, I'm nitpicking on most of my comments, or I really enjoyed it. And I have to, I want to give a shout out to the gorgeous Cover B as well. I don't know who who's the artist is, but Cover B with Swamp Thing on the cover. It looks really, really good. And so, yeah, this is a series that surprises and sort of has come under the radar to be one where, uh, su- interestingly enough, there's a lot of DC titles that I, I actually, am, I'm not buying the physical copies of, but I've been buying the physical copies of Batman Neo Year, and I'm going to be buying Cover B uh, for this uh, fifth issue because I quite like it. But uh, yeah, overall, not bad, and I'm curious to see how it, how it ends. Yeah, it's going to be uh, interesting to see how it all uh, ties up. Uh, if I have any nitpick, I, I get your Constantine thing. Um, and yeah, it does seem a little strange. I don't know if I like it or not. Um, I will say I, I we got a lot of Damon Lumos and Bean Boonma in the first series. I kind of miss that. I mean, they're here, but they show up very, very sparingly. I like those two characters. I wish we had more of them. So if there's another Batman Beyond uh, neo-Gothic series, and I hope there is, I hope we get more of them. Uh, I think Lumos is a fantastic villain, and Bean Boon was just really, uh, really interesting supporting character. Okay, up next we have uh, the Penguin issue four, the X. Tom King's the writer, Rafael Della Torre on art, Marcelo Maiello on colors, Clayton Callan letters. Uh, I don't, don't, did I know the Penguin was married? I mean, I, I don't know. I kind of think of the Penguin as as the kingpin in a lot of ways, and the kingpin had Vanessa uh, as his wife, who was sort of sheltered and very sort of weak and meek. Um, the penguin's wife is the exact opposite. I, I, I'm sorry. I don't know what, I don't know if this is something new. This is a new character. If she's been mentioned before, uh, she's very formidable. It's very interesting what the penguin does here, uh, basically sets himself up to be shot by her and even gets the help to go along and the help agrees to get his ass kicked, which I, (laughs) when it happened, I was like, wait, what? This is the help that, that doesn't happen. Um, but for me, this was only okay. I mean, all the buildup last issue with the, uh, um, God, I'm trying to, the, the force of July, yeah. um, only to have them in this Ocean's Eleven style kind of assassination attempt just be taken off the board. I, I kind of wanted to see him in action. Um, so yeah, for me, this one was only okay. It, it, it's a, it's a very wordy issue. It's very much a talking head issue. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, the, the Penguin is just not somebody that I ever see as really formidable. Um, you know, I mentioned seeing him as the, the, the Penguin. I just mean in relation to he's been around a long time, has a wife, try, you know, tries to be sort of legit. But to me, the Penguin is very much a, a threat and the Penguin is very much not uh, or hasn't been. Uh, but I get why they're doing it. I mean, I think what DC's did, we mentioned it uh, previously uh, with the Worth storyline the Gotham Tower storyline in Detective Comics um, with the Penguin kind of getting out from behind the desk of the Iceberg Lounge. And it seems like DC is trying to make him more of a threat as uh, opposed to being sort of a punchline. So, uh, and if there's anybody that can do that, it's Tom King, right? Look, look at his uh, Batman Riddler, One Bad Day story. Absolutely amazing. Um, so if there's anybody that can do it, it's Tom King, but I'm still having a hard time shaking my, uh, perception of the the penguin is not really anybody who would 
really be a threat. So, but that again, that that's totally on me. The delatory delatory uh, art is very crime noir, which suits a style of story that Tom King's telling. So, uh, so yeah, very te- technically a very very good comic. The only hangups I have are are just my own personal stuff uh, with how I perceive the Penguin. So, uh, take that as you will. What are your thoughts on it, Rocky? Uh, I love this issue. I, I, I did. I, I, it, it definitely does have a sort of an Ocean's Eleven or Ocean's Twelve feel to it. And this, this whole thing, this is the Penguin testing his ex, Lisa St. Clair, who the, the, the Las Vegas Hotel, Saint, the St. Clair. And he's, he's set everything up because uh, Lisa St. Clair's ex-wife basically helped his children sort of take over his empire in Gotham. And he wants, this is just the way, all that he goes through at the risk of his own life is to test his wife, uh, to test his wife and make himself vulnerable who, and gambling on the fact that his wife, in fact, she also wants to go back to Gotham too. And, and at the end of this issue, Penguin gets on his knees and he proposes, but he doesn't propose to marry Lisa St. Clair again. His proposal is Gotham City. Because as he tells her, Gotham has always been the pearl. And, and, he's, and, and one of the re- and what he says to, to, to Miss St. Clair is, you know, you and I are b- both share that, that there's nothing, you know, Vegas has nothing on Gotham. There's something about the allure of Gotham City, dark city though it might be, to have power there is to have power like nowhere else. That is at least how the Penguin's mind feels. And that's how that's how this entire series feels. And th- with the use of the 4th of July, the Victory, Liberty, Mayflower, Side of the Jordan, Sparkler, as well as the help, the help lowering himself, allowing uh, this Mr. This, this Garrett, Garrett the Lunk to actually knock him out. <laughs> uh, I mean, all of that all done at the behest of Penguin to sort of create this facade and to create the illusion that, that leads to his so-called death as a way to undoubtedly lure his children who are in Gotham City into a false sense of security for when the Penguin ultimately w- arrives back in Gotham. He's going to be arriving in, in, in a manner and with power that is going to surprise the hell out of people. Remember what Batman said to the Penguin at the final page of the first issue? Batman said in, in the caption, in, in, in the audition or narration, he said, Penguin, how the he- you're the Penguin. How the hell did you pull this off? How the hell did you do this? Because even Batman at the end of the first issue was thinking, you're the Penguin. He thinks like you, Jace, and everyone else going into this. That the Penguin doesn't normally, he's, we don't think of like somebody who's like a super genius, who's this, who has this much power, this much age, who's, who's quite this devastatingly powerful. Tom King is taking his time to organically trying to create an understanding to first readership to understand what Oswald Cobblepot is doing differently now to bring himself to a higher level of power. And he's determined. And that's what he's been doing from issue to issue. He's building, he's he's preparing. He's taking a lesson out of Batman's playbook. He's preparing. Before he makes his move, he wants to be prepared for every contingency. And there's one thing that this issue makes clear is that the Penguin is willing to risk his own life to get allies for the cause. Allies that would kill him at a moment's notice like his wife, his ex-wife almost did here. This issue is called The Ex After All. I also have got a shout out. I love the dialogue. It's dialogue heavy. I love the dialogue. I thought it was perfect. There was one moment where uh, uh, Lisa says to Penguin, uh, go screw a penguin, 
she uses the F word, go screw a penguin. And he says, I never met a frigid penguin. <laughs> and she goes, oh, Oswald, really? <laughs> I, mean, I, thought, I thought it was, I mean, the, the repertoire back and forth, the way St. Clair always underhandedly uh, downgrades Oswald, puts him down, while at the same time will turn around and put him on a pedestal, but then bring him back down to earth in a true bitch-like fashion, but yet Oswald exerting control over her and in different ways. I thought that Tom King did an excellent job showing the interplay between these two characters and all in one issue. And may I just say that the deletory art is fantastic. Lisa St. Clair looks absolutely gorgeous. Another great scene is when uh, uh, Oswald Cobblepot reflects on their wedding night and says to the help, you know what Lisa said to me on our wedding night? She goes, oh, you, you know, something to the effect of, do you mind if I, oh, Oswald, do you mind if I think of the penguin? <laughs> she, she, she strips naked and says, do you mind if I think of the, do you mind if I think of the Riddler while, <laughs> while we engage? <laughs> so, I mean, it was just... Uh, just her cutting the way she cuts him and puts him down as a way of her trying to show some control over Oswald and how Oswald takes it because that's part of what that's part of the game and that they play. I thought it was I thought it was very well done, very well scripted, and it plays perfectly, just so perfectly into how this series is going. Uh, I, I will say straight up already in all the issues of Penguin in the past, there there's maybe a handful of Penguin one-shots that I have read that have been as good as this in the past. There's been really good Penguin stories in the past, I acknowledge. This is definitely uh, in my top 10 for sure, and uh, as we're going into these these this story so far anyway. Each individual issue here of the Penguin, I think, has been absolutely stellar, so kudos to Tom King. Yeah, next up we have Detective Comics number 1078. Written by Rom V. Art is by Jason Sean Alexander. Dave Stewart on colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. Man, talk about dragging things out. Batman still hasn't been hanged. <laughs> it's like, let's go. It's like three, it's like three issues. We're dragging this out. So Catwoman has her you know, distractions in place to try to uh, distract and pull as many of the security people away from where Batman's going to be hanged so she can then... Uh, attack the organs themselves, threaten the, 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 the organ air, if you will. Um, but unfortunately the, the matriarch of the organs, you know, my son will make whatever sacrifices necessary to achieve our goals. doesn't really work out the way that she hoped it would. Um, and so whether or not they'll be able to save Batman, well, it's not, it's not looking good. Um, I'll just, uh, I'll just put it that way. So, uh, the Jason, Sean Alexander art, it's, for me, he's he's somebody who's art. He needs an inker, and he doesn't have that. So going directly from his pe uh, pencil and line work directly to colors makes everything sort of uh, feel a little uh, kind of mushy in a way. Uh, it's not sharp. Um, so to me, the art's only okay. A uh, little bit of a trans uh, transitional issue. I guess we'll see how it all plays out. But I do appreciate that things are finally coming to a head. In the storyline, it feels like it's been going on for forever, <laughs> honestly. So uh, what are your thoughts on it, Rock? Uh, I, I, I've, I've really been enjoying this Detective Comics in the latter half, particularly with the uh, inclusion of Azrael. The Azrael the Azrael Batman makes an appearance here. We've got multiple fronts encapsulated in this issue. We've got, we got Batgirl and Mr. Freeze in the caves underneath Gotham uh, taking out some of uh, the Orgham's uh, men. we got uh, Jade and Cheshire, uh, Cheshire Cat, uh, her daughter Lee, 
Leanne, they, they've also been taken out a uh, different other men of the Orgham uh, Empire underneath the, the caves of Gotham. Uh, Jade is particularly deadly, but she she agrees not to kill because she made that promise to her daughter. Uh, last issue in the backup, which was very well done. Uh, this is all a distraction for Catwoman to sneak up and try to uh, put a knife to the throat of Prince Orgum as a way to sort of blackmail uh, the Queen Orgum to uh, let Batman go. But she doesn't care because the Queen, the queen is prepared to sacrifice her own son. She's prepared to sacrifice his life uh, because he's, he's just an instrument. And uh, of course, you really begin to see how, how little she cares because we know that she betrayed her son to begin with. We know that through, throughout the past story, and I won't go into it because it's a long convoluted story. <laughs> but suffice to say, uh, all this is happening. Meanwhile, uh, my, my, favorite line in, my favorite line in the entire issue, I have to say it, Azrael Batman shows up to take off the sort of like the wolf creature of the organ saying, what hubris of man who thinks to pass judgment upon the angels. <laughs> I just love that line. Anyways, uh, this is this is cool, Azrael Batman. I love this. And I really, I'm really curious to see how this resolves itself because all these players are so cool. And uh, I got to say, I want to give a shout out to, I like how Leon, Leon is, is, is the Cheshire cat. I like how Leon looks with uh, the black uh, with, with the mask that she has, uh, the uh, that that Cheshire she wears, uh, just like her mother uh, Cheshire. When Leon wears the mask as the Cheshire Cat, I think that's her best iteration. I like that better than how she, than than how she's portrayed and the costume that she's given in the pages of Green Arrow. Uh, but that's my particular bias there. But uh, th this uh, Batman still isn't hanged yet at the end of this issue, so there's still hope. <laughs> So it still ends. We're, we're still going to have to wait to see next issue or maybe a few issues to see exactly how this wraps up. But uh, uh, yeah, but I, I enjoyed this issue. I've, I've been enjoying Detective Comics. It's uh, probably one of my top five of DC at the moment. But uh, I don't know if you want to. Yeah, we have a backup story uh, with the eco version of Catwoman written by Dan Waters. Casper Wingard is the artist. Steve Wands on letters. Uh, I like the agency it gives to uh, Aiko. Um, so other than that, it doesn't need to be in here. Um, it doesn't tie into the main story at all. And, uh, honestly, DC just needs to get rid of these backups and drop the price on the books. Uh, gotta be honest. So yeah. don't have anything else to add other than that. Yeah. It just, it's, it's basically, uh, it, I go going on a, on a date with an, another mobster, uh, another female mobster and instead of getting close to her, she realizes that this other female mobster loves being a killer, loves being the head of a crime family. And it basically, uh, she dresses up as Catwoman and uh, interferes with the machinations of her, uh, of her uh, date and uh, breaks up with her at the end. That's really it. Uh, really not necessary. Uh, but, you know, again, it's a, it's a backup, but it's more filler. And it's just, uh, I agree with you, it just sort of pads the, pads the issue unnecessarily. Yep, yep. Up next, we have Steelworks number six. This is the final issue. Multitudes. Michael Dorn is the writer. Sami Basri and Vicente Sifuentes are the artists. Andrew Dahlhaus on colors. Rob Lee on letters. Uh, I really enjoyed this whole entire series from start to finish. I enjoyed the voice that Michael Dorn gave to um, not just John Henry Irons, but also Lana Lang. Uh, he does a good job of um, giving everybody a little bit of time on, on the page, on the spotlight here in terms of the rest of the super family showing up to, to take on Walker the third and his security chief. And uh, we even have 
uh, a situation uh, at the end here where um, what's the guy's name? Sean, the um, Carey, Sean Carey. Yeah. Sean Carey, the, the, the disgruntled former uh, employee that, um, that Walker, you know, manipulated and gave him phasing powers and what have you. He sort of does a, a turn, uh, turns over a new leaf. You, you sort of saw it coming. Uh, he, he was never in it for revenge because he knows no matter what he does to John Henry Irons, it's not going to bring his wife back. So uh, somewhat of a tragic character. Uh, and I thought Michael Dorn did a fantastic job of being consistent with uh, what happens to him. Uh, you know, he was always a tragic character. And, you know, at, at the end, he, his his ending is, uh, is tragedy as well. So I hope we get more from Michael Dorn. I'd love to have a Michael Dorn writing a, sort of an ongoing John Henry Irons. I, I've never really cared that much to read John Henry Irons before, but in the hands of Michael Dorn, it's been really, really enjoyable. Timeless in a, a lot of ways. Yes, it ties in with what's going on in action comics in terms of uh, what Henry Irons is doing with Steelworks and, and uh, technology and trying to set Metropolis up to be able to protect itself and not always be reliant on, on superheroes. Um, but that doesn't need to be said in any particular time. And uh, there's a timeless quality to this. Again, it's continuity light. You don't have to read anything. Just read this series. It's very self-contained. So very impressed. Uh, I said it before. I'll say it again. I'm shocked that this is the first comic that Michael Dorn has written. Uh, first of all, because he's Michael Dorn, you would think he would have written some Star Trek comics. The guy's a writer and clearly <laughs> talented. Uh, I think he's directed a bunch of episodes of, um, Deep Space Nine as well, so definitely multi-talented. Um, but the other part of why I can't believe he hasn't written any comics is because he does such he's so good at it. He does such a good job. Uh, you know, there's no uh, co-writer credited, so I'm sure he did the heavy lifting, and uh, you know, I'm sure his editor worked with them and what have you to go over format and that sort of thing. But yeah, just a, a really enjoyable series. Um, I can easily say without question my favorite John Henry Irons story. Uh, and partly because I, I really love the relationship between him and Lana Lang. Like I, I like that relationship and I love seeing Lana with their powers again. So uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this. What'd you think? I like the art, Sam Basri, Vincent Sefuente, uh, really great art. I, I love, I love Lana Lang. It's, it's good to see her as a superwoman here. She actually kicks some ass. I, I quite enjoyed that. Michael Doran scripts some uh, pretty good uh, choreographed fight scenes. I, I quite enjoyed that. And, the, uh, you know, the character arc become, comes for a circle for, for Mr. Carey. He turns a new leaf, so he, he finds redemption at the end. At the, it looks, to, I believe, it, it at the cost of his own life. And, uh, of course, the bad guy gets stopped. And in terms of, the, in terms of uh, John Henry Irons himself, he gives up zero-point energy. It becomes clear because of the, the way that the matter resolves that zero-point energy, at least the manner in which they've discovered it, it doesn't quite work. It's too dangerous to be used, so zero-point energy is going to be abandoned by his corporation even though it's going to cost him billions of dollars by giving up zero point energy he's going to give it up to try to find another way i don't know how he's going to do that but if you know i can't imagine a corporation in our world giving up zero point energy uh there's just a rumor right now that uh there's a rumor right now that uh going around that they've actually made an, another big discovery in, in ai here in our world and they're keeping it under wraps which is why there's been some uh I'll some corporate wranglings that have been going on lately. So there's a, uh, there's a little bit of some real world, maybe reflections in this comic. If you want to, if you want to be so inclined to see them there. And if uh, you know, we can question as to what degree uh, certain CEOs in our world have the moral code of John Henry Irons. Uh, but in any event, I enjoyed the story, great art and uh, yeah, good job by Michael Dorn. 
Yeah, fantastic. Uh, up next, Green Arrow number six from writer Joshua Williamson. Pencils by Sean Isaacs, Phil Hester, and Trevor Hairsign. Inks by Isaacs, Parks, and Hyatt Hairsign. Colors by Fajardo Jr. Letters by Troy uh, Petrie. I would prefer if we had one artist on this, but at least they make it work in terms of the Hester art is set in a certain time period. The Isaacs art's in, in a different time period. The hair sign art when he gets back to um, the island where he's uh, when he finally gets out of the the time stream where he's uh, trapped and what have you. So uh, this is the end of the series, but it doesn't really feel like an end. It says to be continued in the hunt for Arsenal. But first, what do you mean there's no Justice League? Because the the subplot that's been going on uh, with Roy Harper, he gets ambushed by um, Amanda Waller and and uh, members of this, I guess it's not the Suicide Squad, it's just a lady peacemaker and peacemaker um, with what's going on with, uh, with whatever machinations Waller has. So... Uh, Again, I don't know the timing of this and what have you. I know uh, Williamson's working on a lot of stuff over uh, GI Joe stuff over at um, over at Skybound. He's got his own creator own stuff at Image. Seems like he I, he hardly has any DC work coming up. So I don't know if he just decided it was time to take a break from DC after being so heavily involved. Because I always heard that this Green Arrow was an ongoing, and then now it's been truncated to six issues. Um, we can debate on how well it it all played out. Maybe if he did decide to leave and it, the, the storyline got truncated, that would feel why explain why it feels a little bit choppy. Cause it almost feels like at one point it was going to be almost like an old man, green arrow type story. And then it sort of pivoted and it, this is an ending, but it doesn't wrap everything up. I don't know how satisfying it was. And for Merlin to be the, the bad guy, it doesn't really make sense that he, I mean, he's just a guy with a bow and arrow. And granted, you know, supposedly he died in the the Leviathan Rising storyline and, you know, he shows back up and now he's part cybernetic. But that wouldn't seem to give him the ability to to throw Oliver through time and have all these uh, ability to manipulate different parts of the multiverse. It just, I don't know. The, it, this story just didn't come together for me. But that being said, uh, if you set aside those continuity errors and just read it for what it is, it's sort of a fun adventure, and the Sean Isaacs art is absolutely fantastic, and it's uh, very nostalgic to see Phil Hester on um, back on Green Arrow as well. So there are positives to it, but I, I just wonder if this wasn't truncated in some way, and that's what ends up making it feel a little choppy. And it, it does; it definitely doesn't wrap up. It doesn't finish the story, other than it gets Green Arrow back to our part of the multiverse. I, I guess you'd say so. Uh, yeah, this it's not really one that I would probably recommend or, or feel like it's going to really be that memorable unless the hunt for Arsenal ends up being really great. But uh, if it's got Amanda Waller in it, I don't know how great it can be. But anyway, what were your thoughts on this one? Uh, you know what? This is this has an undercurrent of fun to it. Uh, just don't, whatever you do, don't try, don't try to make sense of the plot line because it's nonsensical. It makes no sense. It makes no sense how Merlin got his powers. Not, nothing's explained. It's, it's still not really explained why the Legion of Superheroes was involved. Why are they involved? It, 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 this is why all these different iterations of, of this is just sort of like a history lesson of Green Arrow from beginning to end. And I, I know people that have really enjoyed this romp. And 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 in that respect, it's not bad. And you know what? I love, uh, you know, it, the the ending scene, which also doesn't make any sense. Leon shows up out of nowhere, stopping an arrow, unexplained, and, and then all of a sudden, 
they all disappear through a portal and then they end up separated for reasons which aren't explained and then Green wakes up on a beach and then suddenly Black Canary nonsensically just for reasons which are unexplained or is, is also walking on the beach to allow for a, a, a great, beautiful scene, fantastic art, where her and Ollie kiss. Okay, uh, just don't make sense of this story because there isn't one here. Uh, I, I just, and, and I hate to say that, but this just doesn't make, uh, I wanted this to be about, if you're going to, uh, you have to convince me that Green Arrow has a family because he, you know, I mean, he's, he's is he even related to any member of his family other than Connor? I mean, he's not married to Buck in, in Tadina. He's not, in any event, I'm being very cynical, okay? But I've never really been a Green Arrow fan. So if you're going to convince me that he's really a family man, which he is not, okay, you got to do more than just have this. And then here, you, you've scattered his family throughout time, throughout every which way but loose. And, and you know, six issues in, I'm, I'm not, this feels very scattershot to me. Uh, but, and yet, despite all my, my ranting right now, I'll be damned, there is an element of fun. There's an undertone of fun that keeps me coming back to this. Uh, thank God the art's good, because the, the writing itself would have pushed me away, but for the art, because the art is, is, is fantastic, is, is really good. Um, the, the, it definitely ends on a cliffhanger, which is really cool. What happens to Jade and what, ha what happens to Cheshire and what happens to Roy Harper at the, at the hands of uh, Amanda Waller, who uh, continues to rise in the ranks as a villain in the DC universe, I think is kind of cool. I know you don't like Amanda Waller, but you know, and, and maybe many of us are sick of Amanda Waller, but there's no denying that the DC, in the DC universe right now, Amanda Waller is rising in the ranks to be the villainous force to be reckoned with. And uh, uh, so I'm at least curious in that regard, but I just really, really, really don't want Joshua Williamson to be handling the big event that involves Amanda Waller. I don't want that. To be honest with you, I'd rather Tom Taylor handle it. If Beast World number one is any indication, I want the next big event after Beast World to be handled by Tom Taylor, not Joshua Williamson. He's consistently failed at the big events and at telling a coherent story. To be honest. So there's my rant. Mini rant. Yeah, fair enough. All right up next, we have Batman Brave and the Bold in the interest of, again, trying to go quickly. I'm going to talk about all four stories uh, here, one right after the other. So Batman Pygmalion Part 2, Guillaume March, Story Art and Letters, Arif Prianto on Colors. We find out that the guy who thought he was Batman is not Batman all along, uh, <laughs> but yet at the end, the, when Batman actually shows up, it seems like he's going to team up with him. Heartfelt story, again, very impressed with Guillaume March, who's mostly known for his art with what he's doing on this story. There's a wild dog story. Here comes trouble. Part one, Kyle Starks, writer, Fernando Passerin on pencils, Eau Claire Albert and Wayne Von Grabager on inks, Matt Herms on colors, Rob Lee on letters, love wild dog. He doesn't show up enough. Um, a lot of people I think that are fans of peacemaker would get a kick out of wild dog as well. He's more serious than the John Cena version of peacemaker. It's not as laugh out loud, funny, a little more of a hard edge to it, but it really, really works. Uh, again, big fan of Kyle Starks. What he, you know, speaking of Peacemaker, uh, the Peacemaker Try Hard was done by Kyle Starks, uh, so he's a great choice to do this wild dog story. The Aquaman Communion story, part one. Gabriel Hardman, writer and artist, Matt Hollingsworth on colors, Simon Bolin on letters. That one's just okay. It very much feels like a typical Aquaman story. Nothing special, but it is only part one. We'll see if it gets better. Then The Wager, Matthew Rosenberg is the writer, Mateo Scalera on art, Clayton Cowell on letters, black and white, demon Batman, make a bet, 
It's a lot of fun. It's the Ryman Demon. Maybe the most straightforward Matthew Rosenberg story I've ever read in terms of he doesn't drop a lot of one-liners, but I think he gets his uh, sort of humorous fix out of doing the rhyming um, dialogue for the demon. So I thought the Matteo Scalera art, being able to see it in black and white was a real, real treat. So that I think was maybe my favorite story, but uh, Wild Dog comes in a close second and the Batman Pygmalion jury's still out because we haven't gotten the conclusion of that. But again, really impressed by what Guillaume March is doing there. Uh, the art and story is really fantastic. The Fernando Passerin art on Wild Dog uh, is very crime noir as well, really well done. And Gabriel Hardman, I mean, if you know his art, he's uh, he all his art always has a bit of an edge to it. Like I think some of my favorite art he's ever done that I've seen is the Green Lantern Year One, very much in that same vein, especially the underwater scenes with uh, with Aquaman. So all in all, a really strong issue of Batman: Brave and the Bold. What are your thoughts, Rocky? Yeah, I actually my favorite was Pygmalion. I actually. While it was a little bit, I kind of predicted it, but I was, uh, you know, I wasn't entirely confident. Uh, but yeah, it ends up being a different Batman. But I like it. I particularly like the inclusion of Catwoman. Catwoman's involvement in this sort of this new character who's Batman. And uh, I don't, I never got the impression that Catwoman realized that it wasn't Batman. But uh, I was surprised. I got the impression that she never realized that it wasn't uh, actually Bruce. But this might have been maybe it's because it's Batman Year One. But in in any event, I. Uh, I like the fact that Bat the real Batman shows up and uh, is sympathetic to this this Batman, this Pygmalion Batman, and uh, I like it because this this family that this this fake Batman befriended uh, may end up they may end up with a happy ending, and it it ends on a cliffhanger with this Batman with this Pygmalion Batman going to to rescue the family that he's sort of been part of, and uh, it this is so sort of, it's leading toward a happy ending which I like so I, I quite enjoyed it for that reason. Uh, Wild Dog, I, I I've got I I think I mean, is Wild Dog probably probably ranks number one or two for the for the a DC comic that you're most likely to find in in dollar bins. I mean, uh, does every does anybody who coll who's collected comics over the last ten years and has been in the dollar bin in the last ten months not have the first issue of Wild Dog? Uh, I don't know. It may, maybe it's just in my area, but it, it, it's why it's it's crazy. But I actually like the Wild Dog story. It's my second favorite. It's uh, very detailed. I I, I like it. It's again. You have to distinguish it from Peacemaker because now that we, when we got Peacemaker, you got a or peace uh, Peacemaker. Why does Wild Dog exist? He's he, he's got to be different in some way, and I think they actually managed to pull it off here. So I'm not sure where it's going to go. If we're going to see more of Wild Dog, I think he's a redundancy. I frankly don't think they should have introduced them. We got Peacemaker. Why do we need him? But. I guess it's interesting to see. Uh, as for the other two stories, I'll just leave your comments. I never, I, I didn't appreciate them to the extent you did. So uh, we, we can carry on. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Uh, Power Girl number three is up next from Leah Williams. Pencils by Eduardo Pansica. Inks by Julio Ferreira. Colors by Romulo Farrell Jr. Becca Carey on letters. Eduardo's got two books. I mean, obviously he didn't draw them in the same month, but uh, yeah, pretty interesting. Um I, again, like this thing that keeps striking me about Power Girl, this iteration of Power Girl page that they have, is how young and inexperienced she seems when she's a character that's been around forever. I get that they're trying to distinguish her from Supergirl, but I just don't know that you can because even in this issue when she's talking to Superman at the beginning, it feels like an interaction between Supergirl and Power Girl. So I just don't know how well it's going to work. 
Um, but in terms of this Kryptonian uh, parasite or virus or whatever the heck it is, if, if it's related to the symbiote ship, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, but it, it does feel compelling. It does feel like this is moving along. Um, but I, you know, will this Power Girl series at the end, will it have establish Power Girl as her own character that feels different from Supergirl? I, I sort of have my doubts. And it's nothing against the creative team. I think it's an impossible task. Those characters are just too similar um, to to really have them be distinguished unless you change one of their power sets completely. And my argument then would be that, like, if you change and, – and they it felt like they were going to go down that path for a little while with the whole uh, telepathy or whatever psychic powers that Power Girl uh, was started to manifest or whatever. But we didn't – we didn't really like that either because then it didn't feel like Power Girl. So, yeah, again, these, they're just characters that are so similar – very hard to uh, to distinguish them, um, but I do like a lot of the allegory and symbolism that Lee Williams is is bringing here with this Kryptonian lion that's uh, on its deathbed and what have you, and lonely and feeling isolated, much like Power Girl herself is. So, really good job from Lee Williams. I like the voice that she gives Power Girl, um, but unfortunately, Power Girl's voice and Supergirl's voice it's just similar. It's just the way that it is. Um, so yeah, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, I should also mention, I should also mention that the Eduardo Pansica art, whether he drew this at the same time as the other book that we talked about or not, regardless, the art, the line work is fantastic. It's so fantastic. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous line work. So, uh, go ahead. Uh, well, I'm going to respectfully disagree with you, my friend. I I think that this does this thing. I, I feel a distinctive difference. From from Supergirl myself in this storyline, uh, and it's because it's just be, it's uh, be, it's because of the use of the symbiote ship. Uh, one of the most interesting parts of this story, and I think that writer Lee Williams has done a good job here, is showing just how different uh, Paige is. And you know, she, she tells Superman. Paige doubts herself and she shouldn't because her instincts are bang on. She's right. She's, she tells Superman, I think this is the symbiote ship. I don't think this is a virus. I think the symbiote ship is doing this. And Superman doesn't believe her. And Superman, uh, I'm sure at some point is going to owe her an apology because she's right. It is the symbiote ship. And the symbiote ship ultimately ends up mutating. And the symbiote ship survived uh, uh, the, the encounter that, that, the, the symbiote ship originally had with, with Superman and Power Girl, and it ultimately ends up infecting this lion that, that, that Power Girl feels a kinship with because this lion is the last of his kind, and the, and the lion is in the Fortress of Solitude and is likely going to die there. He's the last of his species. And so there's, there's some symbolism there because Power Girl herself is a multiversal anomaly, and she's the last of her kind too. And, and in many ways she's more of a sole survivor than Superman himself is because Superman has legitimately has family. He's got car. He's got Supergirl. Uh, Paige literally has nobody from her original Krypton. And so I, I like the fact that the symbiote ship is uh, the symbiote ship. Ironically enough, only the last time the symbiote ship itself had any kind of connection was to Paige herself and the way that it mutates and takes on and infects the lion itself I think is very powerful and then ultimately ends up infecting Paige at the end with Superman looking on and finally arriving at the hall at the uh, fortress of solitude at the fortress of solitude realizing that Paige herself has now been infected by the symbiote ship and I, I really like the progression here and I like what Lee Williams is doing and exactly what is this, how is this going to play 
what's going to end up, what's, what's the symbiote ship, what's going to be the fate of the symbiote ship? Because it has, it's such an integral part of Paige's Power Girl's origin. What is Lee Williams going to do with this enemy? How is this story going to resolve? I'm really curious for that. Edward Penseco on the art, fantastic art. I'm, I, I really enjoyed this issue. I thought it was, uh, I, I've been enjoying, I can't believe this. I wasn't a fan of the telepathy, but I even enjoyed Omen in this issue. She actually found herself useful and she was even on roller skates. My God. Uh, but no, I actually, I enjoyed this issue. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm enjoying it too. I just don't know if this whole page and making her seem younger or whatever is really going to, I just don't see it distinguishing her from Supergirl. And it feels like that's what they're trying to do. Regardless of what they're trying to do, this is a quality story, and I'm, I'm enjoying it as well. But it does feel different, right, when you go and read Power Girl and Jeff John's Justice Society, and then you read this Power Girl. It feels like two completely different characters. I would argue that older Power Girl, the more experienced Power Girl, feels less like Supergirl than, than this Power Girl does. So if they're trying to distinguish her from Supergirl, actually making, in my mind, or to me, making her feel more like Supergirl, so... Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Harley Quinn, number 34, is up next. Tinny Howard on script, Sweeney Boo, art and color, Steve Wands on letters. Uh, just This just continues with the Harley Quinn multiverse. This uh, At one point, it, there's a line in the comic that says she's a crisis in and of herself. We don't really understand why. It hasn't been explained. In a way, I don't know that I like it, the idea because it's giving Harley the equivalent of superpowers, and she's never really had superpowers before. So I just don't know how well that works, but it does work on the level of being crazy and zany and it suits the Sweeney Boo artwork and colors very, very well. Um, so, and I, I enjoy this multiversal private investigator that's been introduced as a character. Um, so for those that haven't been following along, somebody's going around and murdering all the Harleys in the multiverse and the main Harley is being watched by Lady Quark and sort of the multiversal police to make sure she doesn't mess things up in the, the multiverse like she's done in the past where she's pulled objects from other multiverses into her multiverse and caused kind of butterfly effect type stuff. Um, so Harley's being pulled in a lot of different directions. Um, there is a little bit of Harley Ivy uh, drama as well going on. So this has all the um, requisite parts for kind of a crazy over-the-top Harley Quinn story, but very different than anything that's been done before. I don't know how well it's working for traditional Harley fans. Uh, for me, it's it's okay. I'm not the biggest Harley fan. I'm able to follow it. Uh, again, I like the multiversal private investigator, but uh, this isn't a book that I would be buying, um, you know, off the off the shelf. And I'm only reading it because I get the press copy, so I can talk about it with uh, to you guys. Um, but then again, I'm not probably going to read any Harley book because uh, she's just not a character that I'm not in invested in. But um, there, there is some entertainment here, but I can also understand why longtime Harley fans, this is just kind of too far into left field for, uh, for some. So anyway, uh, did you read it? Have you been yeah, following? I've, I know you're, yeah, you're, yeah. yeah well, I'm, and I, I, I'm, I don't have much to say. I mean, honestly, this isn't, this isn't my cup of tea. Again, uh, Sweeney Boo's art is, is good here, but honestly, this is something that I would actually expect this type of story to be a backup to a Captain Carrot and an amazing crew where, where Captain Carrot was the main story and this was the backup. I just, I can't take this. Uh, look at it. 
and again, I've said this before. How do you criticize a, a, a comic like this that was that is supposed to be stupid and crazy and, par- and a parody of whatever? I guess it's it's almost uh, review proof in, in many ways. Or you know, how do you criticize this? But I just I'm just so thoroughly uninterested in this. I I just I, I don't even want this. I this will never be referenced back. I don't I don't I don't fall. I don't understand it. I don't understand Bud and Lou. These are dogs that seem to have multiversal power and influence, and Lady Volt seems to care about Harley, and who cares if somebody's trying to kill Harley in the multiverse? This is all over the place. Why is this more than two or three issues long? And if this, this story feels like it's been going on forever. Uh, I just, this is just not for me, uh, this, this storyline. This really has to, the tone has to change, like everything. I'm just, I don't know. Um, I don't know. There's not a lot of other people reviewing this i know there's more than a few sites that have stopped reviewing it because they just they don't know what's going on and it's just not hardly and i i I don't say that to be cruel i just say that as an observation and but i just i i I got nothing to put my handle on here because where are we going what's the purpose of this other than just being crazy and everything else It, it it needs to have more of a purpose it doesn't have a focus and it doesn't have a point but then and if your response is well that's harley well then i think you're missing the point uh if you want to stand out you got to have a goal and a purpose and i I don't i don't think this storyline does and um you know, I'll just, that's all I got to say. Mini rant again. I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely a different take on, on Harley. Uh, having given her these multiversal, possibly these multiversal powers. So yeah. Uh, up next, we have the conclusion of city boy written by Greg Pak. Minko Zhang is the artist, Sebastian Chang on colors, Wes Abbott on letters. Uh, it, it wraps up. Um, I don't know how satisfying it is. It wraps up in a, in a, a way that makes sense. Um, and I know it's supposed to be sort of heartfelt with City Boy accepting the f- loss of his mother and what have you. But for me, it felt it, it felt a little flat. Um, I think that – I don't know if I expected more. I, th- this started out really strong. The last couple issues just felt kind of paint by the numbers. Um, it didn't really land for me. Uh, clearly, there's more of the City Boy story to tell. Uh, I did like that City Boy kind of stood up for himself – Stood up to Doctor Moncari, the, the minion of Darkseid, at the end. Um, but yeah, it, it just if it, it it didn't land with the impact that I think it was supposed to um, with that scene with Cameron and his, his sort of this um, city robotic version of his his mother. Uh, it just it just felt a little flat for me. Um, I did appreciate the interaction between Cameron and the other heroes, Superman, Batman, Nightwing. Uh, I think that all worked, but um, I don't know. I don't know if it, if it felt rushed or if it just lost its way. Um, but yeah, the last couple issues just they weren't as strong as the start for me. So uh, I think it was okay. I think um, as a, a character, Cameron City Boy still has a ton of potential. I hope we see more of him. But I, I think maybe the putting him in a story where the the bad guy was dark side, but he's sort of behind the curtains and, you know, pulling the strings. It's just a little too much. Uh, I get that you're trying to make it that this character is, is very powerful and very important, what have you. But I would say maybe try a little bit of a smaller story and maybe it might've worked better. Give us a chance to get to know Cameron, yeah. get, give Cameron a chance to get to know his, his powers and uh, what he's capable of. Cause that sort of isn't really clear to me, even after these, 
uh, six issues. I know he can wander around cities and the cities talk to him and he can find lost things, but it's got to be more than that, right? Um, so yeah, I think maybe a little too ambitious um, and then it, it's too hard to stick the landing with what was uh, what was sort of promised the potential at the start. But I don't know. Maybe you think differently, Rocky. What were your thoughts? I, I, I don't. I'm going to be a little bit more harsh. I started off more positive with this. I thought the city boy had the most potential. And it, I, I, I can officially say now it's been squandered. Uh, the reason why is that one of the uh, city boy has the powers of basically Jack Hawksmore of the authority. Uh, but the reason why Jack Hawksmore is a substantially far superior, better written character is because there's there's always an element of mystery as to what Jack Hawksmore powers were. Yes, you can communicate with cities, but leave some mystery there. Unfortunately, City Boy, what we what we've been uh, what we've what this what unfortunately, <laughs> Great Back doubles down on here is just just the ridiculous absurdity of I mean, the embodiment of these cities is like a flying a flying robotic monster and then a dinosaur it's just so stupid i uh, this is the this is the essence of, of of the city of metropolis and bloodhaven it's just it all the all the the metaphysical the the, the emotion and and to capture the emotion of a city in such a this is such a one-dimensional insulting way to do it in my mind and you know this is a boy that's lost he's got issues with his mother he lost his mother and you know at the end there's a giant metallic vision of his mo of, of his mother that that he sort of talks to and it's ridiculous and the villain's trying to control it, it doesn't work you, you hit the nail on the head jace when you said this needed to be a smaller story this needed to be a story about a boy coming to terms with his past and losing his mother and being able to find some kind of redemption and a way to overcome his own sense of guilt uh in a smaller more human story as opposed to one that embraced the absurdity this is almost like taking it, what should have been a small story feels like a really cheap version of Monarch Legacy of Monsters. And the monsters are the cities, which are the embodiment of the consciousness of the cities in the past. It's way too much. It misses the point. It squandered the character. I'm not interested in seeing this character. It doesn't help. I hate to say it, but the art's not been good. It just hasn't been good. The art has straight up been not appropriate for this series. But then I got to tell you, the concept alone is not one that's... Uh, it, it's just a... It, it, it's just so sad. And if you're going to have this large epic with, all, with these monstrous, uh, monstrous constructs representing the cities, what is Darkseid? I mean, if Darkseid wants to use this kid, the, the, I'm not using Darkseid as a sin. Now, to be honest, I don't want Darkseid. Darkseid probably didn't want to show up in this comic because he felt insulted. It was beneath him. Uh, that's what this comic became. I, I hate to say that, but such a great concept, completely squandered. And I think you nailed it. They should have kept the story more character-based, a smaller story dealing more, more with the past of City Boy. And you didn't need a huge cast of characters like this Nightwing, Superman, blah, 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 desperate to get attention. Uh, I mean, I get it. The comic books are hard to get people's attention with, but I think this was just a completely missed opportunity. And I just don't care if I see City Boy again in the foreseeable future unless it's, it's written substantially with a different approach than what this was. Well, I think it's very telling that you and I both, you know, we didn't talk about this beforehand and we both came to the same conclusion. The story was just too big for what the character was. We, we want smaller. We want focus on City Boy. We need to get to know City Boy. I need to know why I'm supposed to care about it. Yeah. The story just didn't didn't do that. So, 
Uh, all right. Up next, we have Cyborg, issue number five, written by Morgan Hampton, illustrated by Tom Rainey and Travis Mercer, colors by Michael Atea, letters by Rob Lee. Now, here's a perfect example of keeping the story small but uh, or feeling more intimate, but you could still have threats, right? You could still even have guest stars. The rest of the Titans show up here. Now, granted, we know Cyborg much better than, than we do City Boy. He's been around, but I would argue that Morgan Hampton's done a, a good, good job making this new reader friendly for somebody who doesn't know Cyborg. Um, that he does give you reason to carry is rooted in his city of Detroit. Uh, you know, his issues with his father have been explored. So Hampton's done a really, really great job. And, uh, that continues in this issue. Love the art, love the colors, um, sort of surprising what we find out about, um, solace, this, uh, this character that we thought was out to, uh, to, uh, to murder Marcus, and then we find out that he—he's actually, you know, you had this idea that Marcus was there, um, and he was stealing everybody's essence, baby, basically their their digital self, right? And he was going to this Solace character, this this digital version of Marcus that downloaded itself into one of the synthetics, was out there to to try to. Um, save Marcus, do his bidding, what have you. No, it's actually the other way around. It's the Solace who, in a lot of ways, is an analog for who Cyborg was when he first, uh, after his accident and his father did what he did and turned him into a cyborg. Um, Solace is actually, wants to kill Marcus. You should not have done this. There's um, some self-hatred. There's some self-loathing that this character Solace has, uh, this digital version of Marcus but yet, it's Marcus's consciousness, it's Marcus's intelligence, it's Marcus's personality digitized that thinks differently than the real Marcus. So it, it, there's, there's more to Marcus than we've been told so far, right? Like, clearly there's a part of him that realizes what he's done is wrong and rebels against it. Uh, and so you have to think about, so where's that disconnect? What happened to Marcus in the past? that made him, you know, want to pursue this. I mean, his whole idea of, hey, if we get to the point that we can transfer our digital selves and our memories and everything that we are into uh, a synthetic body, we can basically achieve immortality, right? And you have the, the digital version of, of Marcus, and maybe it's partially because that digital version of Marcus doesn't really feel human because uh, it never has been. And then you download that into a robotic body. Now it feels even more inhuman. Like I said, there's the the sense of like self-loathing and self -ha self-hatred. Um, and it's like, okay, well, now I can live forever, but but why would I want to live forever if this is how I exist? Right? It's a it's a parody, it's a funhouse mirror reflection of what life really is. Um, you're going down the wrong path. I'm gonna destroy the biological Marcus so that this this future that he seems to want to pursue of uh, digital immortality doesn't come to pass. That's really interesting, right? That That is, a, again, such an interesting uh, contrast to Cyborg, right? Because you can look at both the real Marcus and the digital Marcus and this body, the solace, as it calls itself, and you can see reflections of, of Victor Stone in both, right? Because Victor, he is both. He's got his human parts. Some of, some of him is human. Some of his human body remains, but he's also got robotic parts. He's the melding of these two. Uh, and when you look at it, here's Marcus, here's Solace, diametrically opposed to each other. 
in ideology and in what they are, right? One is completely flesh and bone. One is completely robotic. And then you've got, you know, the analog of that, these two opposing tensions, they're together in one body, in one person, in one entity in cyborg, right? Like, think about that. Think about what Victor Stone has to, to deal with. He's not human. He's not ro robot. He's both all in one. Uh, I think that's brilliant from Morgan Hampton. Just absolutely uh, amazing. So really impressed with this. Can't wait to see how it all uh, plays out. And I think there's one issue left. So uh, so we'll see. What do you think? Uh, well, I want to draw attention to the title of the of this issue. Is Remember the Tin Man. And when I think of Tin Man, I, I think of uh, Wizard of Oz. And the Tin Man was always... Uh, the Tin Man was always looking for a heart, right? And, uh, and, uh, or pardon me, a brain. <laughs> tin Man, Tin Man was looking for a brain, right? Or is it the lion? I think the Tin Man was looking for, in, in any event, uh, the, the fact that, the fact that the, the artificial intelligence or that the, the AI version of Marcus actually has a, a greater sense of morality uh, human morality than Marcus does is what I find so ironic. And it's almost kind of scary because all this fear we have in our modern day world about the fears of AI, you know, and everyone fears, well, what if AI overcomes us and becomes evil, et cetera, et cetera. Well, perhaps there's a possibility that AI can teach us to be better humans. Can, uh, and ultimately, Cyborg is a symbol of that. Cyborg could have went either way, but Victor, Victor Stone uh, was able to reconcile the AI, his, his AI version with, with, his, with his humanity and come out up top. Now, Silas, uh, here is Silas battling Marcus, his human version that gave him, uh, hum Marcus's brain is the very thing that formed the basis of Silas. And uh, they're having this struggle and they, they have this debate and the debate plays out wonderfully in the dialogue between Marcus and Silas. And it plays out very well. And really, it's like listening to a debate in our real world of, of the debate between AI versus technology. Where do you cross the line? You know, uh, what risks do you take, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I agree with you that that aspect of it has been uh, has been well done, and um, the rest of it, yeah, the rest of it, the action is sort of a little bit by the numbers, uh, but you know, it's it's the, it's the character work uh, that has made this series work. And Morgan Hampton did have something to say here, and uh, he did a good job saying it. The good use of Silas and Marcus, and um, uh, it ends it ends well. Uh, I think that the the final issue is is probably a given we know that cyborg is ultimately going to be battling uh, silas what's the ultimate fate of silas i don't know but it's this is this feels more like every hero has an opposite and i'm not sure if silas uh i don't know if i would view silas as the opposite of cyborg other than the fact that silas could end up being a good ally you'd think he'd be a good ally to cyborg and yet he might end up being an enemy and yet he seems to have a stronger moral compass than marcus the very brain that inspired him but i agree with you it was uh, well done by morgan frampton and you know when you consider this is we're five issues in this is going to be a six issue series this accomplishes what six issue series should do a good story in six issues that make you think has something to say and some good themes yeah and to, again to go back to the title remember the tin man yes tin man did want a heart because the heart in his mind was where human emotion came from Again, to talk about solace and the self-hatred, self-loathing he feels for himself, maybe because he can't feel. Um, so, yeah, which is so interesting because I, I talk about self-loathing, self-hatred. Those are emotions, right? 
maybe, <laughs> dude, you have emotions. You're feeling the negative ones. Mm. Uh, all right. Up next, God, we're on the last book already. Uh, it's Batman 89 Echoes. This is from writer Sam Hamm, Joe Quinones on art, Lee, uh, Leonardo Ito on colors, Carlos and Manguel on letters. So Sam Hamm, for those who are not familiar, he was the uh, screenplay writer for the first Batman that uh, Tim Burton uh, directed, as well as the second Batman, the one with uh, Danny DeVito as the Penguin. Uh, we had a previous Batman 89 that really focused on uh, the Billy D. Williams version of uh, Harvey Dent or Two-Face. Now we're getting uh, maybe what would happen next if uh, the following uh, movie had taken place. Um, it ties in with what happened at the end of the last series where Barbara Gordon figured out that Bruce Wayne and Batman were one. And instead of turning in Batman, she got him to agree to not be Batman. And that's where this sort of picks up a few years later. Um, Batman hasn't been seen in four years. Bruce Wayne's been holding up his end of the bargain to not show up, but there have been other people, just random Joe Schmoes that have dressed up as Batman trying to stop crime. Of course, they get themselves killed because they don't have the training. And so Barbara Gordon goes out to Wayne Manor to make sure Bruce is holding up his end of the bargain, only to find out that Bruce has been missing for a number of weeks. Alfred has no idea uh, where he is. Meanwhile, Firefly appears to be uh, the villain, uh, at least one of the villains, because we also have Harleen Quinzel and uh, Jonathan Crane show up here. Um, and Firefly, it seems like, is going to be uh, the bad guy, but Correct me if I'm wrong. At the end, doesn't Firefly look like Bruce Wayne? Yes. Yes, he does. I think. Yes. So, that's true. What's going on? What the heck's, <laughs> yeah. What the heck's going on? I don't know. Uh, and I will say that the previous Batman 89 felt very rooted in the Batman 89 universe, which I know it's sacrilege to say, um, but I never really Batman. The Michael Keaton Batman wasn't really high on my list of Batman until actually the Flash movie. Uh, I enjoyed him a lot in that movie. He went from maybe fourth on my Batman list all the way up to second, uh, right below Ben Affleck. I think Ben Affleck is the perfect Batman. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Christian Bale was above. I think even Val Kilmer I liked as as Batman more than uh, more than Michael Keaton. But he did such a great job in the Flash movie or what have you. So. Uh, so yeah, the, the previous Batman 89 was just okay for me. Uh, cause I'm not really invested in that version of Batman. Um, I'm sucked in, I am sucked in this, the mystery, the crime noir feeling with the Gotham city SWAT team, Barbara Gordon. Like I love when Barbara Gordon goes walking into the manor. She's got the overcoat on, but the lapels of the overcoat are yellow. Gives a little bit of a bat girl feel right yeah uh, just little clues like that so yeah i i really really enjoyed this first issue uh and what the heck's going on with firefly that looks like bruce wayne and uh, god only knows maybe he's maybe that's how bruce wayne you know i promised i wouldn't be batman i didn't say i wouldn't dress up as any other uh you know costume people maybe he's trying to infiltrate the underworld who knows uh but yeah i'm i'm sucked in with only one issue and the joe quinones art he does such a great job of uh, making it feel like a comic book, but also making these characters, uh, you know, you can kind of see the actors that he's basing these characters on. The Billy D. Williams, or the, the Harvey Dent looked like uh, Billy D. Williams. The Michael Keaton looks like an older Michael Keaton. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm all in on this one. I, I, I enjoyed the first issue of this Batman 89 book more than any of the 
previous Batman 89 uh, issues that we had. So yeah. what did you think? Well, one of my central criticisms and yours as well, if I recall, in the first Batman 89 series, and it wasn't just us, it was other reviewers. Wow. One of the reasons why people were better uh, drawn to the Superman 78 series is that it actually involves Superman. The Batman original Batman 89 series by Sam Hamm here, uh, Bruce Wayne was a guest star in his own comic. It was almost an exclusive. It seemed to be exclusively a cameo. Not yeah, even, he, almost not even a guest star. He hardly showed that, up. That's exactly right. And I, and I, if I didn't know better, I think uh, uh, Mr. Hamm has realized that and he's made Bruce Wayne uh, the central part of the mystery of this story. And that's a very, very good idea because one of the things that I wanted when, you know, Batman 89 echoes is I hope Bruce Wayne actually is part of this story. And what I like about it is Bruce Wayne is part of the story. He appears to be Firefly coming back as Firefly four years later. Now he's in Arkham Asylum and you never mentioned another character that shows up and that's Harley Quinn. The Harley Quinn of the Batman 89 universe shows up as a site as a as sort of a narcissistic tv I, host I, yeah i mentioned her and and jonathan crane they both they both show up uh, but she's she's that. very pissed off uh because yeah. she doesn't uh she does she's pissed off that you know her uh you know her her interview is was preempted by this talk by this uh by this talk of firefly showing up and and so she's all about ratings and attention uh, and attention getter and uh uh yeah, the, the central mystery. I'm, I'm actually intrigued. I, I like the fact that it, it, you don't actually need to read any of the original series, thank God, because it dragged on way too long. And it was a Harvey Dent heavy story that dealt with Harvey Dent and then Rob didn't, you know, it, I, it turned me off for, by the second issue. It, it, it just had, it sort of missed its point. It should have been about Michael Keaton, Bruce Wayne. This seems, I hope, is, is a Bruce Wayne story. Now, Bruce Wayne only shows up here. It appears to be Bruce Wayne at the end. I hope we get more Bruce Wayne and the mystery that that forms the central part of the story moving forward. The art is really good. I love Barbara Gordon. I, uh, you're right about the colors and the subtle clues and the color, everything. Um, I'm really curious to see where this goes moving forward. I'm immediately more captivated with this than I was with the uh, with the first series. So kudos to Sam Ham, uh, Joe Quinos uh, uh, on the art and cover, very well done. And Leonardo Ito on the colorist. Let's give him some prompts for uh, for the for the subtle coloring uh, from page to page. So no, this was this was well done, and I'm looking forward to seeing this moving forward. Yeah, hundred percent. All right, collections we have out this week. Danger Street Volume One collects issues one through six of Danger Street from Tom King and Jorge Fornes. Uh, Superman, Son of Kal-El, Volume 2. So this collects Superman, Son of Kal-El, 7 through 10. Uh, Nightwing, number 89. And the Son of Kal-El 2021 Annual. We also have Batman, The Dark Knight Detective, Volume 8, which collects uh, Detective Comics 644 through 653. And Detective Comics Annual, number 5. Uh, plus a corrected printing of Detective Comics Annual, number 4. That's classic stuff from uh, Chuck Dixon. We've got Wonder Woman by Gail Simone, Omnibus Hardcover, collects Wonder Woman's number 14 through 44, the 2008 series, 600, Sensation Comics featuring Wonder Woman number one, plus Gail Simone's story from the Wonder Woman's 75th anniversary special, Seven Soldiers of Victory, Omnibus Hardcover, this is the Grant Morrison, um, Seven Soldiers of Victory, which collects all his different Seven Soldiers of Victory miniseries, I'm not going to go through them all here because there's too many to list. But it's $125 for 792 pages if you're a fan of 
Uh, Grant Morrison, Seven Soldiers of Victory, picked that up. Uh, Nubia and the Amazon trade paperback, which collects Nubia and the Amazons one through six and material from the uh, Infinite Frontier Zero. Uh, then we've got Green Lantern, the Silver Age Omnibus Volume One hardcover. So this collects Showcase 20 through through 24 and then Green Lantern one through 35. Uh, thousand pages, 125 bucks. Basically, you get the whole uh, first, what, 50 stories or so of uh, Hal Jordan as Green Lantern. So if that's your jam, uh, you can pick that up as well. Uh, so that does it for the collections. Uh, again, big week from DC. Rocky, uh, book of the week, what do you got? Uh, I'm going to go with Titans Beast World because, you know, I didn't think Tom Taylor could do it, but he impressed me. And anybody that can make me care about Beast Boy, and I tell you what, I was never a Beast Boy fan. Even going back to the 80s, I could care less. But yeah, he managed to do it. I wanted Beast Boy to stay dead in Dark Crisis. I, I, I liked when, when, when Destro pulled the trigger. I didn't care. Uh, and now I suddenly care. And he, he's Goro now. And I'm, I'm concerned that his mind is forever lost. And Raven's looking for it. And uh, we're, we're off to the races with Beast World. And uh, I, yeah, I got to say, I'm, uh, that's, that's my pick of the week uh, for, uh, for the week of November 28th. What about yours? What about you? Yeah, you know, that's a great pick. Uh, I might have leaned toward that way myself, but since you picked that, I mean, a lot of great books this week. Uh, the end of Shadows of Dakota, the static story was great. Alan Scott, Green Lantern, continues to be, continues to be really, really good. So does Action Comics. Uh, you, you know, you really enjoyed the Penguin. That's probably deserving of some consideration as well. Steelworks ended on a high note. Uh, Cyborg, again, really a book that really made me think. Uh, but ultimately, I'm going to go with Batman 89 Echoes. And the reason I'm picking it as my book of the week, which probably surprised a lot of people, is because it was so – I just wasn't expecting to enjoy it as much as I did. Again, not a big fan of the Tim Burton Batman 89 universe. I totally agree with Rocky that Batman was a, a guest star at best, maybe a cameo star uh, in the first Batman uh, 89 series that we got from Sam Hamm. It was totally focused on uh, the Billy D. Williams, Harvey Dent. Two-Face. Um, so for me to be so invested and just like page after page sucked in, it just really, really surprised me. Plus the, you mentioned the Edo coloring, the Kenyonis line work are absolutely fantastic. So yeah, based on pure surprise factor, uh, I'm going with Batman 89 Echoes. Uh, but yeah, a lot of great books this week, uh, a big week. Uh, as we said, obviously, uh, I think we did a good job keeping it relatively short considering there were 17 books. Uh, so yeah, hope you guys are all having a joyous holiday season. Uh, 12 days as a com comic source will be coming up, focus on bad idea books this year. So look for that. And yeah, if you're at LA comic con this weekend, uh, definitely hit me up. Yeah. Anything to add Rocky? Uh, no, just, uh, you know, I don't know about everybody else, but uh, this coming weekend, my wife and I will be putting up the Christmas tree. Uh, yes, it's Christmas is here already. I can't believe it. I cannot believe it. But, uh, you know, and I, I mean, my, my wife has already done her Christmas shopping and I, I will be starting this weekend. So uh, we, we shall see it. By the way, just for just for shits and giggles, uh, my, I'm involved in a Chinese gift exchange with my family. And the, the rules are simple. It's got to be under $100. And we randomly chose a letter from the alphabet, and we, we all have to buy something for under $100 that starts with the letter H. 
So I'm <laughs> frantically looking for anything that starts with the letter H. I'm running out of nouns in the English language. I may have to resort to French and German. Uh, but, you know, I'm desperately looking for something. So if anybody has any ideas for me, uh, please uh, leave some comments below. You know, a, a nice Christmas present under 100 bucks that starts with the letter H. Let me know. <laughs> There's any number of hardcover comic book collections you can buy from people. This is true, but then they'll or definitely know it's from me. <laughs> yeah, Harley Quinn. Yeah, Harley Quinn statue. So. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's going to do it, everybody. Appreciate you joining us as always. Don't forget, if you're listening to the audio-only version, head over to YouTube, subscribe to Rocky's channel, Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. Ring that notification bell. Subscribe. That way you're sure not to miss any of the content. You can get involved in the conversation in the comments below. Let us know what you thought of this week's books. Conversely, if you're checking us out on YouTube and you want to be sure not to miss any of the audio-only content from the Comic Source interviews, convention coverage, what have you, just go to whatever platform uh, you enjoy most for your podcast. Do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe. So that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Appreciate you joining us as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.